had to reinstall Zoom. Sure. And then I'm like, oh shit, I can only find one of my HDMI capture cards. Like, <laughs> like, what am I? Well, it's good to uh, good to connect with you, man. It's uh, until a couple weekends ago, it's been a, a while since we had uh, connected. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's how it is for me and a lot of people. Um, just you know, I I see a whole bunch of people a bunch of times during the summer, and then other people for whatever reason I we don't cross paths. You know, so yeah, it's kind of like uh, being in this sort of community. You have a network of friends all around the country. Uh, and you see them usually only at the racetrack. Yeah, yeah, it it depends. I've got Michigan people, and then uh, the Chicago people, and then the Wisconsin group is a little different, and then down south is a whole other group. Yeah, sure. it's it, it certainly is interesting. And so, uh, do you have a network of tracks that you normally hit on a regular basis? Uh, yeah. Um, I would say generally gingerman groton autobahn road america uh blackhawk and at one point there it was putnam for a while but i don't really shoot putnam anymore um and i've shot barber for the ama a few times like on and off uh i shot it for stt once um mid ohio i shot for ama some as well but uh late, late management change there i'm not sure what happened so okay you know so you really are like the Midwest, my region, main photographer guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say so, at least with sport bike track time. Um, it's, it, it's a little bit, depending on what organization, you know, it might change a little bit, but I don't know how official the other orgs have people. Um, and I know we're a, it's just sort of like a free for all people to show up. Same with CCS. Okay. Uh, yeah. So. I decided to drink beer, by the way. So, hey, well, I don't know if you heard, but I cracked one right before uh, I hit uh, press record. So I got a uh, perfect Elysian. I, I think it's called. I don't know how to say it. I just uh, picked it up from the store. It's called. Elysian. I've had that brand, but not that beer. Contact Haze Hazy IPA. It's, uh, yeah. it's pretty hazy. It's different. I'm on the the truth. Let me see if I can get that to come into focus. When, it, when this is what all the there we go. Oh, there it goes. Oh, nice. Yeah. I don't think I've had that one yet. It's pretty good. Yeah, I hadn't um hadn't done screen shooting with my R6 yet. So I had to like go into the settings and make sure it didn't shut off and all that stuff. Yeah. So uh I guess let me backtrack. This is the ericswanracing.com podcast. I believe it's going to be 105 no, 106 with Joseph Hansen, Joe Hansen of Electric Eye Images and uh he's been a photographer, videographer, um jack of all trades for many years i've known you for probably uh closer to a decade now and yeah i've been doing this since 2010 and with sdt since 13 yeah so you've been a staple of the motorsports community in my region i'm from michigan you're uh, i think from indiana is that right uh, that's where i live i'm originally from dayton ohio okay yeah, very good i got fam i had family in dayton ohio they recently moved to westland michigan so it's cool to have them a little closer now that's like a six-hour drive to uh, to us in uh, Sterling Heights or Dearborn Heights area. Yeah, there's not like a good way to get to from Dayton to there for sure. But um, mm. but it's cool to just connect with you, trying to help promote your business. I get a little bit of free content out of it my uh, myself, and uh, you know I've been learning a lot just from doing these, and kind of had a career change, and um, just it's expanding my mind, talking to all sorts of people. Uh, it's interesting for an hour. 
Yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing to do. I I, I agree. Um, I haven't done a ton of this kind of thing, but I did some some interviews with some people uh, when Masera passed away. I don't know if you saw that video that I made. Um, no, I didn't. But Mike Masera was uh, I was thought of him as mustache mustache Mike. Um, he was uh one of the original people that was at the track when I first started. Yeah, um, yeah. So- He's the first uh first STT director I worked with. Yeah, so he's uh, huge in my mind, you know, growing up, or not growing up, but being being a baby at the track anyways, like learning just as a novice, and mm-hmm. he was the guy, he was like the main dude to go to, so it was like... Yeah, he, he, he was he was, he was was a good dude. And so he, he passed away recently, uh, I don't know all the, all the, the reasons. Uh, it's probably been two years, uh, it was cancer related, okay. just nobody knew, and then he passed, uh, so... I talked to Justin Chumowowski, uh, Todd Thomas, who has also passed now um, from COVID. If, uh, and uh, Monty Lutz was probably um, the primary person to talk to, but uh, and Nikki Kelly, uh, a bunch of the Michigan people, you know. But it was interesting because Monty actually sort of broke down how sport bike track time had started. I'll, I'll send you a link to the video. It's it's kind of it, – it was – it's pretty interesting i don't know but yeah i talking to people that you don't usually talk to for 30 40 minutes is is interesting in and of itself for sure it's like i never even talk to my friends like that we're always distracted on our phones like half paying attention eating food like doing whatever and now right right just get a one-on-one with somebody get to dive deep ask them whatever there's no limits you can ask me anything it's just a conversation I try to stay away from the word interview because interview sounds like it's a one-sided thing, mm-hmm. but it's really back and forth where you talk about anything. At some point, I want to focus on motorsports and my business, but uh, we can sure. be around for forever. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I actually, I've, I, I'm a pretty avid phone talker. Am I clipping a little bit? Make sure I'm not there. You yeah. sound good. You're you got okay. the better audio than I do. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't. I'm not even running any external mic other than my laptop. And right on. Yeah. it's it's so funny because like that honestly that stuff doesn't matter i i watch a lot of youtube um i don't even know if that's what i was about to say but i watch a lot of youtube and you if you really pay attention it's the content that matters yeah. um the only thing about the the audio needs to not be offensive sure nobody wants to people will just not watch it if it's if the audio hurts your ears but if the audio is okay then then you're good to go but during yeah during covid i got into I like that was like my COVID hobby for like a year. I was like getting into microphones and messing around with stuff and doing video work and things like that. Um, yeah, I can complete. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, anyway, I talk on the phone with people a lot and then there are certain people I talk to where I'm like, man, this would be, this probably would have been an interesting recording, (laughs) like discussing like the ins and outs of various things, whether it be politics or solar power or racing. I mean, there's lots of different topics in racing. I mean, Actually, to dovetail into that a little bit, um, when I got into track riding, that was one of the most interesting things to me is that you wouldn't really realize is that it's really more of an engineer nerd sport than anybody really realizes. I mean, you kind of think like it's going to be a bunch of jocks like trying to like show how big their dicks are or whatever. But the reality is it's like a bunch of tinkerers that are like, oh, well, if I click just a little bit more on the rebound here, like, it, you know, I can... I can break deeper and I can feel the front end. It's like, it's really bizarre how that's, that's what this sport actually is. And people from outside of it, I don't think really realize that they think we're just a bunch of crazy people. 
I've said it a couple of times in the last few podcasts, but I don't think they're published yet. But um, so you may have not heard me talk about it, but I think there's two sides of it. There's either the person who's just going to send it and has no real technique. And then there's a, the skilled technician who's going to tinker every little nook and cranny and change every setting possible to find their perfect setting. So there's a absolutely there's gonna, like do it the dumb way. And then there's someone who's going to do it the smart way. And the dumb right, way but sometimes like the smart typical, people go slow because they're too worried. <laughs> right. And then the, the typical squid steps, gets on a bike and just sends it. And they're like, what are you talking about? I just hit that lap time. No problem. But it's not always repeatable because they don't know what they're doing. Right. Right. I, I do find, though, if it's a send it type that had a bunch of dirt experience, they seem to they seem to be able to ride through problems a lot easier. And oh, yeah. I, I, I understand why now, because I got into dirt riding some and I, I didn't I I might have understand on a cursory level before that. But like they're, they're just OK with the bike sliding around and doing wonky things. And but but I totally agree. I've met several people where it's like. And they're really just fast because they don't care if they crash. Like they just somehow don't have that gene. <laughs> like, well, um, so like my idea was, uh, I, I was, I believe that I was fast in the early stages because I had this mentality that I had to be really good to get sponsored. So someone would pick me up before I ran out of money. And I was like, well, I just have to send it now and like not crash. Do do the best you can to be as fast as possible without crashing. And then hopefully you get picked up by somebody and continue racing and all this stuff. That was my idea. So I had to be really fast and not crash um, because you can't afford to crash. Well, I mean, that that's I, I think in, in, in a nutshell, that's everybody's plan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it's it's it's, it's a very relative thing. It, it's funny you say that because I, I feel like I have a unique perspective standing on the side of the track and seeing everybody out there because yeah. um, I know who's fast and who's not. Um, but what's really interesting to me is seeing how some people will just, they show up and they just all of a sudden get fast. I don't know. They're like the, it's, it's, it's weird. But then other people I've seen, there's quite a few people that just plateau forever and you think they're never going to go anywhere. Well, then some of them actually break through and actually make it. And on that end of the spectrum, too, there's some people that like just incrementally. And this this is one of the weirdest things to me is to see people over the course of like five years, like just get a little bit faster. Like uh, uh, every single, you know, every single time you see them, like it, it's a really weird thing because, you know, they were really slow for a long time and they just progressively got th th I think those people crashed the least. But by the time that they get to the point where they're really fast, it's like just kind of surprising, you know. <laughs> yeah, like you never expected them to actually make it there. Yeah, and and you can see the different um, stages, right? Like, so there's like the intermediate where their body position's really good, but like, eh, they're they're really not breaking very late, you know, and they're still not carrying quite as much lean angle as they want. But then all of a sudden they start carrying apex speed and it's like practically dragging elbow. <laughs> but they're still a little timid on the brakes. But then you know they've really made it like when you see them like coming into like 10 at Gingerman coming down the hill and like taking two people before they like before they tip in. You're like, yeah. oh, all right. <laughs> he gets it now. <laughs> like, it's like a lot. I think a lot of racers or, or even track day riders, they will have a couple of turns really well set or a couple of sections of the track really down, but they're not piecing it all together. So they might be like a second or two from their optimal lap time, 
but they have good sector times uh, if you look at them out individually. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's sort of the classic thing too. Like they might turn left better than they do right, and you know that that kind of thing, right? There's um, a lot of psychological barriers going on. Yeah, you know the other funny thing I notice when people get fast, fast and go racing is all of a sudden body position for, for a lot of people becomes less important again. Yep. Um, I mean, I guess I it's funny. I mean, I guess it doesn't matter if I name names because I'm not saying anything super offensive or anything, but like. Uh, Jason Bowman and Foster Wagon. I don't even know how to say his last name. Wagon Summer. Uh, yeah, those two guys um, were like these progressively, like they got a little faster and a little faster and a little faster, and then eventually, I, I hate even saying that Foster's fast at this point, but he really, he really is pretty quick. Um, but then like Christian Ireland, I assume you know him. Yeah. He just like, I I didn't even know he was fast. And then all of a sudden, I shot some CCS last year, and I was like, "Holy, what, what the, <laughs> the hell is this guy doing?" And his body position—he doesn't look fast in photos because of his body position. But you go watch him ride, and you're like, "Oh, that that guy is like—he does not care when he's out there. Like it's—it's it's like the classic uh, Cambobier superbike uh, body position where he's kind of neutral. He's not—he's um, mm -hmm. not using excessive energy. He's just kind of staying mid position on the bike." He's not yep. his head to the ground like a Dustin Apgar ghillie suit, you know, dragging, uh, dragging your head around. Right. Yeah, I remember that video. But um, uh, he, he gets off the bike when he needs to, but mostly right. he's just managing the front end and trying to get on the fat part of the tire or on the drive and and thinking about how to keep people from passing him if they're nearby and how to get around them, that kind of thing, and less about looking like a monkey coming off the thing or whatever. Of course, then I there's Blake. Know, there's Blake Holt, who just looks like a model on the bike, just yeah. like he does off the bike. But I think it's also different if you're on a super bike versus a super stock 600. Um, you're going to be taking different lines, so your body position might change too. Yeah, yeah, agree, agree. Yeah, and another guy who's pretty old school, Heath Meister. Uh, he he, his body position isn't very great, but if he decides to go fast, <laughs> he goes pretty fast. <laughs> yeah. Know. So what's interesting is. Uh, when you're starting out in novice, intermediate, and advanced track days, and you just made it to advanced, you're like, oh, I'm dragging my knee. I feel so cool, right? But when you get to, like, uh, expert racing and professional racing, it's like you're picking your knee up. You're trying not to drag your knee uh, mm -hmm. as much as possible. And, like, not because it's really slowing you down. Like, the resistance is minimal. But um, uh oh, we're just – oh, no, I got some overheating going on. Yeah, that's – that's that's what happens when I shoot with a new camera. And you know what? This camera is known for that, too. You know, that's funny. Yeah. Interesting. Um, <laughs> I got another one. You probably got seven different cameras over there. I've got two or three sitting here, but I don't know. <laughs> Although, actually, let me see if my webcam is plugged in. Because overheating. I did not anticipate that problem. Dun, dun, dun. You know what I should have done is not set it to 4K. It probably would have been not overheated. You got 3K? Just 1080p or whatever. You know. Yeah. But it won't. You know what? That's what I need to do. Let it cool off. And then uh, I'm trying to remember where the settings are in this. Uh, oh, I think this thing might be on. Oh. Nope. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, let's see. Oh, and the GoPro's not on either. Yeah, geez, this is this is just not great. It's it's all good. Spotlight on me today. That's right.
<laughs> I don't know if you can still hear me very good or not. I can still hear you, yeah. Okay. Let me get this thing adjusted. See if I can't. Okay, I got that, but let me go to the different settings, settings and try to prevent the overheating. That's cool. I can see what you're doing. Yeah, you can. <laughs> okay, it's, it's mirrored too, which is actually makes me think I'd probably want to go into settings and change that. This uh, is some uh, background information from a real photographer. So you're seeing this, this actual settings going on. Yeah, so I can figure them out in mirror image. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's in the red menus. Oh come on. Oh, you know what? I can probably do it. Now that I think about it, I can do it. Um, you won't see this, but I can do it here. I think. No, video mode. Camera. I'm like doing this backwards. <laughs> you can take your time, man. I can always edit edit anything out. Okay. Or maybe even keep it. I mean, people like to see the raw stuff too. Who knows? Yeah. Man, I was doing a podcast the other day. Uh, I had some. I usually do Zoom recordings nowadays, so it's rare for me to have someone come over and me actually use my physical cameras. So I was using my. I have three. I have a GoPro. I have a Sony Handycam, and I use my cell phone as the other camera. And my yeah. Sony Handycam was turning off every 15 minutes. So I'm like, well, that's not good. I, I don't know what setting it's put on now, but uh, something's not, not right with it. It's probably in your power saving settings. It was plugged in. Yeah, I mean, this thing's plugged in too, but it was shutting off on me before the, before I got on your Zoom call until I told it to not turn off. Yeah, so I don't know. I got to look into the settings, but... Uh, it's been like a year since I did one in person because most of the stuff I do is like people all over the country now. So, right. It's yeah. It, it's, I was actually kind of curious what kind of setups you use. Let me, let me see if I can find. Well, I just have these uh, Amazon Basics little tripods over here. So, I got three of these little tripods. Yeah. Tripods are important. And set them up all around the room. I got some umbrellas with uh, lights on them right behind me. I got just two umbrellas. Um, Pretty simple, and then uh, just a table on the you know table in front of me, and that's about it. And uh, my dad helped me build this uh, this backdrop, for my trophies behind me, and uh, I got some tires over here. Yeah, there you go. But uh, got yeah. all that stuff, but we're just on the laptop. <laughs> it's funny. Just using the uh, laptop, yeah. Um, well, I'm th th I have right now. I've hooked up a uh, it's a full frame mirrorless. It's a Canon R six. And this is a Sigma 24 millimeter f 1.4 at 1.4 at 125th of a second because I was at 60 frames, but I okay. just went to 10, 1080p 30 frames, so I could probably cut the shutter speed down some, but whatever. Um, I'm probably I'm about to sell this because the new R7 just came out. This is a, a Canon uh, M6 Mark II. Oh, nice. And that's actually a Sigma 16 millimeter 1.4, so it's another really good. Uh, you know, video blogging type lens because it can be close enough, but it still has enough aperture to give you some bokeh, you know. Uh, and then uh, this was my primary camera, but the R6 is kind of becoming the primary camera. This is a... You said it's a, is it a Yamaha R6? No, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a Canon R6. That is funny though, right? Because there's an R7 now, and then there's going to be a, an R1 
<laughs> so I this is like one DX uh... two. This is what I used to shoot with almost primarily, but the R six is kind of becoming the more primary camera. I like the ZX6R is a little bit better. You like the Kawasaki's? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Kawasaki cameras? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is kind of funny that, that the, the names have, have crossed over there. But, you know, um, yeah, I, I like the, especially for this kind of thing, the full frame cameras are good for low light, for shadow detail. And, so you're uh, although, speaking, uh you think it's kind of interesting I'm using the laptop. You think I should be using a different camera, ex external camera, instead of the one that's built into my... Uh... Uh, you, you could get better quality. I don't know that... Th this is one of those things, though, where it's like, I don't know if it matters uh, for what you're doing, because the content is really what's important, right? Yeah. But I, I do feel like at least reasonably good video quality is is important. But then when you're doing something, when you're recording on, on a platform like Zoom, it's, it's only going to be so good, right? Um, I like lighting and all that is is very important. That that'll make even a crappy camera look better. Which I, it looks like you have some lighting going. Yeah, you know, I got a, a window over here that I have no control over. I could put some something in front of it to dim it, but that's all natural light coming over from there. I feel like natural light is great. And if you I have a bunch like of light, it might be too bright. But um, I'm not sure. Well, if you were backlit too bad, it it would be not great. But um, I don't know. Here here's some examples of stuff that I see on YouTube that is decent quality, but I know that they don't use crazy setups um you're familiar with cletus mcfarland yeah okay i swear to god they use phones for half their stuff but phones are so good now it's better than any camera that i have my cell phone is is the best camera that i own for video it's i mean my my iphone can do 240 frame slow-mo at 1080p <laughs> like Wild. nothing i own can do that yeah. like um and then uh matt's off-road recovery is another one uh, they use, I, I noticed they use quite a few, I think they use not just GoPros, but Chinese knockoff GoPros. Really? Mm -hmm. wow. I think it, the thing, the thing with that, that kind of stuff, I think the one advantage of having at least a camera that can do 4k is if the, in the editing, then you can, you can crop in and still have quality, you know? Gotcha. So if, if you're looking to like hit 1080p, you've got the ability to crop in 4x and keep all the pixels. Okay. So that's a, but having said that like uh linus tech tips are you familiar with them no no i haven't heard There's of them not a computer guy huh? um he, he's he's another one of those guys that started off on youtube and he was um very small and he just got bigger and bigger and now he's millions of subscribers but he uses like 8k red cameras and like he, oh yeah honestly i think what he uses is overkill for like basically doing videos with building computers in a room you know i mean something like what i'm shooting with is gonna look 99% as good as what he's shooting but he's shooting on stuff that's too expensive for me yeah, 10 times <laughs> as much the cost uh, yeah it's it's a very very expensive stuff but he does employ editors I mean he's got an editing team and you know servers and I mean you know it's it's a it's one of those YouTube channels where it's like no is this YouTube channel like legit probably employs like two dozen people wow so, you know yeah. uh I when I was first starting out this podcast, I was like, I need to have the best production value possible because like, there's this whole thing where you can either have a great production value and your content is like, all right, or you have great content and your production value doesn't matter. I'm like, well, I need all the help I can get because I've never done this before. You know, let's like, yeah. give me all the possible help. Um, and so I wanted to create uh, like an intro and I've reached out to some like videography companies. I was like, I have no idea how much an intro costs. Let's just ask. Like a 30 second to a 60 second intro. Yeah. They're like, okay, 
they're asking for five figures. I'm like, uh, this is not what I was thinking. I'm thinking like a couple hundred dollars. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking I at probably, I could probably help you out with something like that. I mean, it's yeah. um but yeah, I mean I, I get it. I've I've talked to a few people about when you when you're talking to like legit production companies, it's a different it, it's just a different game, I guess. You know, they're using those red cameras. They're shooting with with hundreds of thousands of dollar cameras, and uh -huh. they have a team of people probably at your event that they all have to pay a, a generous salary to. I get mm -hmm. it. It's just uh, they're that's more marketed to like uh, uh, drug companies and insurance companies and like mm -hmm. major like Geico a actual TV production, right? Yeah, who have million dollar budgets. I'm like, I just want like a quick edit like that makes me look good, you know? Yeah. That, that's what's fascinating about how things are today um, because this wasn't uh, even obtainable by normal people up until somewhat recently. Um, the, the, the video quality of any one of the three cameras I just showed you is as good or better than hell, a lot, quite a, probably most of the stuff the TV, like actual TV used like 15 years ago, you know? Yeah. <laughs> And, and not to mention the fact, like, when you get into cinema, then then you're dealing with cameras that use film. Still, today, quite most of quite a few things are still shot on film uh, because that's sort of what the industry is built around. But that's a whole, just a whole other expense and a whole other, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's wild. But it's like that with anything, right? I mean, anything that's enterprise is, if you're, it's it's the same thing with my my cameras versus uh, the people the average person that comes to the track and shoots just because their boyfriend's riding or whatever right like if you're making money with it you're willing to put money into it sure. you know and if you were making millions of dollars then uh, as an example uh you've seen maybe the camera guys at like MotoGP you ever been in MotoGP race and you see the guy standing up on the scaffold yeah yeah I I've been a track marshal at Coda for MotoGP okay yeah you know. The lenses on those cameras are um, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. They're like this this long. <laughs> that big box thing, yeah. And I mean, I don't know specifically what lens they use, but I've seen some reviews on some of them, and generally they go from eight millimeters to eight hundred millimeters. Wow. Right, like it's, and they're able to do it. I forget what it's called, where a lens will hold focus, so I could focus on something at eight hundred millimeters, zoom out, and the lens doesn't. The lens stays focused on the thing that I'm as I'm zooming in and out. Like it's, but they're built for TV and to be able, they have to be able to do everything at once. You can't just pick up your other camera with the other lens or change lens out. Like it has to be able to do everything. But if for cinema stuff, they don't use lenses like that. They use more specific, well, they do, but they use, they use more specific lenses because they have the opportunity to change out for the exact lens they need because they stop and then make a new scene, you know, like. Right, right. They have yeah. unlimited takes. And uh, so I wanted to ask you, pick your brain on how those those uh, super, super slow-mo, MotoGP, perfectly still images that you see, um, how much do you think those cameras cost? Well, that's actually the exact, that's what we were just talking that's about. Your, that it's the $250,000 lens. Wow. The camera itself is actually, in a relative sense, not that expensive. Um and then when I say not that expensive, maybe ten or twenty thousand dollars, you know. But I mean, <laughs> I, I shoot with camera bodies that are in the six to seven thousand dollar range. I mean, some of them are less, but that'd be the high end of what I, sh I shoot with. Uh, and I might have thirty or forty thousand in my gear total. 
but and, uh, but but that stuff is not just disposable. Obviously, you you have it for a couple of years. Yeah, you you then, invest uh, in it, yeah. It seems like it's it holds its value pretty well, and then you can maybe pass it down to the next up and coming photographer as you move on to maybe the newer model. Of uh, the stuff that I'm shooting with, sure, yeah. Uh, and and the stuff the MotoGP people are shooting with, I I, I imagine they hold on to that stuff for a while. The lens, for sure. Lenses, uh, lenses do not become obsolete as quickly as the camera itself because the camera, in a sense, is your film when it's digital. But with them, the way they're doing that isn't just the camera. It's the huge, expensive tripod and rigging and everything because it's all about stability. Those booms that they're moving across. and like Yeah. That's super cool to watch them do that. It's like a two-person team. You can't get that kind of stability unless you have a lot of weight. So it's, yeah, it's a... It's 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 funny to think about, right? It's not just an expense in the equipment; it's an expense in the time to set it up and hiring the person who knows how to run that specific thing. And you know, it, there's there's a lot, it's a lot to that kind of production. Yeah, and I I even got an opportunity to work for scaffolding setup and and teardown for a camera crew. Like there's that's a paid job that needs to be done in every pro uh -huh. round. They take that stuff with them at the end of yeah. the weekend. Yeah, it's kind of like probably following, kind of like following a band around. You know, they <laughs> they got all their amps and their their drum kits and all that stuff, and they gotta, yeah, it's gotta it's gotta be broken down and taken. Away. Um, something that, something some one of the things in cinema that I think is super cool, and I'm actually I'm not sure. Well, it's stable cam and all that stuff, but they're, they're very specific shots are done by these companies that have dedicated rigs that are just like a car that's built to do car scenes. Okay, yeah. So like uh, one of the guys I saw in a video had a Cadillac CTS V-Wagon with an upgraded Magnuson supercharger making 700 wheel horsepower. Ooh. And then it had a carbon fiber trellis boom on it that was 28 feet long wow. that could spin around the entire car and it could support a camera rig that was something like 240 pounds and they could go 120 or 130 mile an hour with that rig and the reason they chose that car is because you have the director you have the driver you have the guy operating the boom you've got another guy operating the camera and then you have another separate guy pulling focus so like there's one guy they don't use autofocus. They're they're literally just focusing the camera. And they all have their little joysticks and they're all sitting in that car, not killing people while they're going 120 <laughs> mile an hour with a 28 foot boom hanging out with two. I mean, you had to think about the liability there too, right? Like going 120 mile an hour in a car with 240 pounds hanging off almost a 30 foot boom. Like you could hurt somebody real easy, you know? Yeah, like, that's an interesting job to have. <laughs> well, but th their whole business is built around that car and doing that, like, because some director will call and pay them a million dollars to get that one shot they want that then they might cut from the movie, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's, uh, it's awesome to see how they're actually filming that stuff and what, what the vehicles look like. I actually, um, through James Rispoli, he shared something about, a guy who was doing a motorcycle rig setup. So he had that, like the CTSV, but he had that set up on a motorcycle. Yeah. He was a motorcycle rider, and he would go around filming things from a motorcycle perspective. Sure. And uh, I had reached out to him to come on this podcast, and I think he's uh, like, he said, okay, let's do it. I just got to find a date, maybe in a couple of months type of thing. But um, he does movie productions and all kinds of stuff like that. So I'm like, 
how do I get involved with that? That would be super, super awesome to be like some sort of, um, I don't know if you call it a stunt rider or a, or. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Actually, it's funny you say that a guy, how do I put this? The guys that ride at your level are fast and honestly, all of us are faster than like normal riders. Yeah, even the street riders, even the, anybody the, who's been to the track. Yeah, even the slow of us are, <laughs> but 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 the fast guys at track days, they, they would be perfect for or or you know club level racers, they would be perfect for for that kind of thing, right? Like I just need you to be able to follow this guy <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> like, be predictable and not crash and like right. know what you're doing and put your foot down at the right time and like be consistent, you know, like a street rider might miss his mark a couple of times. But right, but, but it, obviously racer. they can hire you a lot cheaper than they can Valentino Rossi, right? I mean, Oh, yeah, for sure. And yeah. so on that point, get this. Um, my life is changing, man. Um, I just accepted a position for autonomous driving company. I don't know how much I can say. Um, but uh, Like a truck company? Like they're doing AI, R&D, autonomous driving software development research and development and i am now the one of the test riders as a motorcycle rider to interact with the car so it's not exactly high performance riding however there will be like um and on a given day i just had a briefing on it yesterday uh we had a meeting with one of the one of the riders who i'll keep unnamed at the moment um but the point is we will do a, a series of tests and each test will run maybe six times. And uh, it's it's all kinds of stuff. Like it could be just accelerating, shifting the second gear and stopping. Or maybe it's more high performance stuff like um, getting in front of the car and, and slamming on the brakes sure. uh, as a motorcycle rider. So, uh, and you're just testing all the different things and the interaction with the car and how it's um, whatever the, the, the testing requires for that scenario. It's almost like a movie stunt rider in a way, but so it's, it's kind of uh, a little high risk in that, you know, there is a person sitting in the car can take over the controls anytime, break and swerve and do whatever, but it's to develop this AI technology uh, for software development for a major company that everyone's heard, heard of before. So, but yeah, if something goes wrong, you, you could get run over. Hundred percent. I said, you know, what's what's the liability? What's the odds of me getting hit by a car? They said, well, no one has ever been hit by a car. Like they'll go over the scenarios, and you'll be briefed on it, and you'll say your your piece. You know what what you think is safe, and and uh, what you're willing to do, and um and go from there. Maybe we'll change the scenario if you're not uh, if you're not feeling comfortable with that particular exercise. We can change it up, um, change the parameters a little bit. But um, it's uh, how, how did you get how did you get that job? That sounds, I mean, it sounds related to riding a little bit. Yeah. So I reached out to uh, six different racing organizations that do coaching, paid coaching gigs. I'm looking for coaching uh, jobs. Um, oh, I like race, became, race coaching. Yep. So I just became a motorcycle safety foundation instructor. I've done five weekends already. I got two more coming up this weekend and the following weekend um, as a motorcycle coach for pe teaching people how to ride motorcycles for the first time. But I'm also looking for, um, and these six jobs I applied for are looking for motorsport coaching on the racetrack, faster speeds. So one of them said, uh, sorry, we don't really have anything right now. We'll keep your stuff on file. And they reached out to me and said, hey, we have this uh, contract with this company. Um, would you be interested in this opportunity? Months after I applied, to, and I, 
and there were no jobs that I applied for. I just reached out to companies that already existed. You got your name on a list, basically. And I, I just said, hey, I, I, this is me. This is what I'm doing. I'm a, I'm a dealer, authorized dealer of 35 brands. I have 100 motorsport podcasts, done 150 motorcycle races. Like I've achieved a professional license. I'm looking for coaching opportunities. Um, and so uh, I found a couple of different companies and uh, this particular one happened to be an open wheel motorsport car company uh, for coaching. Um, and uh, so I am, I'm on the list. I'm, I'm uh, accepted as an, as like a contractor for this company already. And uh, I'm in the process of being a US MCA coach instructor certified however you want to say that so united states right. motorcycle coaching association i'm in the process of being certified for them right now and uh have, have you always worked in the motorcycle industry or um since 2010 so uh over okay. 12 years over 12 years now so and, you're you're 100 like there's like the track day stuff and everything just is part of it's just who every, i am just everyday life yeah yeah it's, i've been at the and so i'm also a track marshal for the last uh year and a half now i've worked for 10 different organizations uh let's see if i can name them off the top of my head probably not uh arma vintage bikes ama district 14 motocross um there's azra national sport bike mm -hmm. ccs championship cup series uh formula one moto gp Moto America, North American Talent Cup, IndyCar, and Wera. That's that's actually ten. I got them all. Sweet. I was nice. not looking at a list. And yeah, uh, yeah, I think I recognize most almost all of those. Yeah, so they're all professional and amateur organizations within the United States and abroad. Um, I'm super happy to get to ten organizations in a year and a half. That's a, such an honor to be even involved and and to be on the list for those organizations. Um, and so, uh, yeah, just been trying to, you know, promote myself and my business. And my, my goal really ultimately is to be able to race professionally for like a decade. I think that's totally in the cards. It's just the hardest part is funding it. So, you know, right. I, had, I had 20 sponsors. It just wasn't never enough. Most companies give you free parts and discounts, which really helps. But uh, yeah, not, yeah. But sponsor is a funny word there, right? Because sponsorship isn't what it sounds like in racing anymore. No, unless you're like in superbike class, they're giving you free parts. Um, it, it's very few companies that are writing checks for you to go race motorcycles. Yeah, it's not like the old days, is it? So I took a step back and trying to fund it myself through my business and, and now coaching opportunities. So the next thing I got going is uh, California Superbike School. So I'm going down to Virginia. Keith, Keith Code. Okay. Keith Code um, is the 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 main dude behind all of this information. And, uh, you know, I, I read his book. I remember at the track days, my first year in 2011, I, I had his book in my tent. My tent got rained on at Gingerman and it's got waterlogged and all that. I still had the same book, the original book mm -hmm. and I'm reading it and all that going over the information. And, uh, man, this is, uh, this could be, uh, so I'm going down there to get, to take the school as a student at Virginia International Raceway. And then at the end of the day, I'm going to be evaluated to become a coach for them. Yeah. Um, and they do three months of on-track riding and racing, schooling and coaching uh, for students at level one, two, three, and four. They have schools for that one-day and two-day courses. Um, 
all around the country. It's called California Superbike School, but they have posts, I think, in the UK and Spain, I believe. I hope I'm not getting that wrong, but I know they're in two different countries other than the U.S. Um, uh, Twist of the Wrist, that's the book, right? Twist of the Wrist 2 yeah. is the is the main book that they teach, but they also have a, a video on Amazon that I just bought again and rewatched. It's a little corny, but they do go over some of the uh, some of the fundamentals of writing, which if you haven't been studying the fundamentals, some, some things get a little muddy, I'd say. Like um, if you're going by a truck on the freeway or you have tons of wind going on and you feel like the bike is pushing you around, you're a liar. <laughs> because what's really happening is the wind is pushing you and you're allowing your hands to move the handlebars. Oh, in, yeah. In a way that's turning the motorcycle. Because mm -hmm. in, in their teachings, they have a motorcycle that has um, the handlebars that are normal that you can turn. And then they have a second set of bars that are that are fixed onto the tank that don't turn at all. And you can see a rider on the bike with his hands on the tank bars and he's not turning the motorcycle at all. They think, Oh, it's, it's your, it's your weight that turns a motorcycle or it's the wind that turns a motorcycle. That's just not true. It's you can maybe go two to three to four degrees, you know, a slight deviation from those things, but you're never turning a motorcycle from the wind um, sure. or from sure. your body position. So, it kind of like changes your wiring of your brain. It's like, oh, well, maybe I'm just pushing the handlebars when that truck, when I'm going by that truck, because the wind doesn't do that much, you know? Yeah. Th those are things you have to consciously remind yourself of for sure. Yep. And then I'm teaching this MSF course and we're doing the swerve. And it's like, oh, well, how do you teach a swerve? It's supposed to be you're, you're upright on the bike and you do um, counter steering. So you're push, push. You're now you're in your new lane and you've mm -hmm. squirted around that object. But in reality, when I'm doing it, I don't push the handlebars. I just do it. You know, it's yeah, like, yeah. You don't, it's like you a don't natural, think about it. it's a natural thing, but like, how do you break it down and like, teach someone? That's a, it's a, that's a funny thing actually in writing. I've, when I am consciously thinking about it, what's interesting is there's a speed where it changes, right? Like if you're at like parking lot speed, when you turn the bike, you turn the handlebars right and the bike turns right, you know, yeah. but once you cross whatever speed that is, now you turn the handlebars left and the bike turns right. <laughs> <laughs> like, but, but once you're at that speed, yeah, you're rarely, you're rarely thinking about it. Like you said, you're, you're just doing it. You don't, you know, you, you might be shifting your weight and doing a few other things at the same time. But at the end of the day, if you want to turn the motorcycle, you just use the handlebars. Yeah. And every time we get to this exercise in the MSF course, I get like five hands go up. Like, what? Excuse me? I don't understand. You're telling me you want me to turn the bars the opposite way I'm going? Yeah. I, I do this quick exercise where I turn their handlebars and I pull it forward and they jerk the opposite way. And like, oh, oh, yeah. I can now. Like, once, yeah, once it's you speed and you do it, it makes total sense. But if you just describe it, they're like, this, I don't, I don't get it at mm -hmm. all. <laughs> It's a funny thing. I mean, actually, track riding and or uh, dirt riding, I've, I've thought about that many times, too, where it's like you need just like that little bit more lean angle and you just put a little bit more pressure on that inside bar. And you get the more lean angle. Yeah. And it's, it's not um, it, you don't always have to push. You can you can pull with the, in, with yep, the other yep. bar. You can yep. do a, a one or the other or both or a yep. combination. Um, mm -hmm. When you're scooter riding with a with a beer in the other hand, then, yeah, you. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're doing it all the time yeah. <laughs> push pull 
For sure. So uh, however you need to do it to get the turn. And so you're not doing that the whole turn either, right? That's just to initiate the lean. Mm -hmm. And then you stop pulling and pushing, and then you just more focus mm -hmm. on your body position and your where you put your weight. You know, it's interesting when I look at photographs from this stuff, you, you can certain people when you catch them at the right moment you can see the counter steer like you can see especially can see uh, like pushing yeah. and pulling particularly fast riders i've even seen where it's like it looks like they're crashing <laughs> like because because i think they may be actually pushing the front a little bit at the same time but they're they they are turning the bars in the opposite way of the way they're turning <laughs> and it's it, it's interesting to look at you know all all those little aspects um the dynamics of motorcycles um i mean that's honestly that's why i think motorcycle racing uh is more interesting than car racing um to watch anyway i mean ca car racing is still interesting in its own right and actually i'm not even one of those people who like poo poo's oval racing or, or uh, drag racing it's all it's all interesting in its own way but motorcycle racing is particularly interesting to watch because you get to see all those little movements that are happening and each rider is totally different like i mean lorenzo versus marquez is a, is a, is a great example right? lorenzo is is like a metronome robot and marquez is like a flat track rider for half the turn and like a, a moto gp rider for the other half like he's you know he just looks wild out there you know and, and then rossi is something totally different than the three of them you know and it's you don't get to see that uh with with a car driver you can still see a driving style but you don't you don't see them dancing on the motorcycle and doing those little things that they do. You know, maybe one guy uses two fingers and the other guy uses one finger to break. I don't know. You know, just weird. Yeah, it's stuff. also uh, different styles, but they achieve basically the same identical lap time within hundreds of seconds. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, and also there are settings on the motorcycle, even if they're on the same manufacturer, the same team, the same garage. Uh, they might have dramatically different settings and still achieve identical lap times yeah yeah uh, oh david gray when I, when he used to ride with sgt <laughs> the way that guy did wheelies was just like <laughs> or just even the way just the way he rode in general he, he had this like crossed up stylish looking thing that like it's almost like did you like practice for the camera for this like <laughs> well you know he used to be a stunt rider yeah yeah i'm, I'm familiar him and ryan kramer uh Andrew Feldhouse actually wasn't technically a stunt rider, but he lived in Florida for a while. So I didn't know Ryan Kramer was a stunner. He seems like uh, he's the most like cool, chill guy in the paddock. He held the stoppy world record. No way. Yeah. I, well, look, I, I would. I I understand exactly what you're saying. I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed it either. But uh, these stunt riders gone racers. A lot of times are are become pretty good riders. Oh, I For bet, sure. because once you achieve that level of uh, mastery with your machine, whether it's like finding that balance point on the mm -hmm. front wheel, doing endos or stoppies to doing the wheelies or circle wheelies or burnouts and circle burnouts and all that stuff. Uh, uh, and you're probably also over the fear of crashing at that point. Oh, yeah. You've already thrown it down the road at least a dozen times if you've done all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably so. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I agree. It's, it's a it's a funny thing. Yeah, I think I one of my first crashes ever, I was attempting to do a circle burnout in the parking lot on my Ninja 250, and that didn't end. Didn't yeah, that, that, <laughs> that, that can go wrong. Like, it has a, Turns out, yeah, it didn't go yeah. very right. <laughs> yeah, that, I, I, could, I, I like to have seen that. That sounds pretty funny. <laughs>
I went about uh, four feet, and I was like, oh, that didn't work. Yeah, I've, I've seen a few uh, spectacular dumb moves by people every now and again, but, <laughs> you know, that's that's funny. So yeah, do you Keith ever code. get called over uh, to an event? You're like, hey, someone's going to send it. Uh, we need a photographer. You know, not real often, honestly, particularly also with STT. They, they frown upon that kind of thing. They get kind of upset with people for doing things like wheelies and stuff like that. And I mean, I, I just start, try to stay in my lane, you know, yeah. um, uh, although I don't even know if I should say this, but I think it's funny because, you know, the track is, I think a lot of people forget this, especially once you've gone so far as you've gone racing. Right. But I remember my first track day at mid Ohio in like, Oh, eight or something. Right. And I wasn't thinking about fast lap times or, uh, and, you know, the right racing line. I got on the track and I couldn't believe I was allowed to go 120 mile an hour <laughs> and the cops weren't going to pull me over. It's awesome. Yeah. I was just like, this is badass. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, and, and, you know, that's the idea, right? Is that it's fun and it's a fun place to do things that you generally aren't allowed to do on the street and you shouldn't do because, and so the wheelie thing, I think is funny because it's like, Look, I mean, I don't want you, you shouldn't go out there and impede other people, right? But, you know, wheelies are dangerous, but yet we're encouraging people to break as late as possible at the end of a straightaway they were going 170 mile an hour or 180 mile an hour, you know, and then turn in and, and carry as much apex speed as possible and drive out of the corner as fast as possible. Like, I, this is all dangerous. You're picking <laughs> like, and choosing what you want, want to happen, and the danger is, is about the same. It, it, honestly... I would say probably, and you know, and in them, I'm sure it has happened, but I have not seen somebody on the track crash because they were doing wheelies. I'm sure it's happened. Yeah. Uh, actually, a high side photo just, just, I don't think the guy was doing an intentional wheelie there, though. The guy crested a hill. Did you see that where the guy looped he, the bike? He looped it? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. He was at a road Atlanta and he came up over some hill that like has a little bit of a jump to it or something. And the rear wheel just, whew, like, oh, shit. It's, I mean, it was just what you're watching the video, you're like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> but, but no, in general, like, I have not, I haven't seen that. And it's just sort of like, well, you know, it's dangerous trying to go as fast as possible around this racetrack is dangerous. You know, yeah, but I that's, mean, uh, that's what we're here doing. Sure. I think um, maybe on a track day, I could see how if you're slowing down and trying to pop wheelies, that could be dangerous. If you're doing power wheelies, that's less dangerous because you're already at speed. You're just maybe having the yeah. front up a little longer and you're not accelerating as fast as you normally would, but still not a big issue. Now, I think in my personal skills set, I would love to go to some sort of wheelie school or stunt school. Like I just, like I do, I've done a track days many different times. Right, right. Most of the time in, in my best braking zones, my rear tire is off of the ground an inch or two. Sure. So, like, I'm used to having the rear tire off the ground, but not four and a half feet. Well, so, and if you if you dirt bike ride, wheeling is a is is a functional skill. Sure, that's, it's a normal thing to get. How over you go over a log as you lift the yeah. front wheeling. And so, like, I would also love, you know, how they're they've introduced the uh, the long lap penalties and things like that. What if we had, maybe not in Moto America, uh, I don't know what series would pick this up, but what if we had like a mandatory wheelie zone? Where you have to wheelie between this zone and that zone, and if you don't, you have to take a long lap or something like that. Counterclockwise at Groton or something. <laughs> yeah. You're, like, like, what, you're not wheeling there. What, what, what's wrong with you? But <laughs> um, 
Well, to, to the to this point, though, you know, I, I think for one, as an organization, it's got to be tough, right? Because you can't sit there and like have, well, you can do this kind of wheelie, but not that kind of wheelie. It's probably easier just to say, and don't wheelie. Yeah. Uh, when Monty ran STT, he used to say, "Look, I don't care if you guys wheelie. I just I don't want to see your drain plug. If I see your drain plug, we're going to black flag you. You know, and and that makes sense to me. You know, you're just out there goofing off. But but you know, so, so you originally asked me if anybody said, you know, hey, this guy's going to send it, go out there. Nobody hires me to do that per se. I do people <laughs> to come to me at the track and tell me these things? Yeah." And, and, and in a, in a way I feel a little bit at odds with the organization because I'm there to capture the cool shit and the cool shit. A lot of times is the shit you might get in trouble, or, you it's know, borderline stuff. Yeah. And, and beyond that, a lot of times it's the coaches and the coaches, you know, I just sort of remind the coaches, like maybe, maybe do it without your vest on. <laughs> like, because, you know, because the, the guys that run the organization, won't feel culpable you know if you're not one of the people who are there supposed to be trying you know but uh, but, but there's there's situations like uh, okay so like autobahn the full course transition you're gonna familiar. get the there you guys get a good wheelie by just riding it the right way yeah and yeah, you, you get a jump too and, and that is a spot particularly yes every single time i shoot full course i have a handful of people who are like hey what what time are you shooting the jump where are you shooting the jump because they want to know when they need to pull to the right and send it you know because you, know, you send it properly there you're going to get a picture of yourself you know eight ten inches off the ground like you know and of course i want to shoot that it, it sells pictures it looks cool you know I, yeah you know every now and again i have people telling me hey i think i'm dragging elbow in this corner or unfortunately wheelies have gotten a lot less common i think just because of electronics also um they used to be way more common just because people would accidentally wheelie now now people have bikes that have 200 horsepower and they're afraid to turn the electronics off. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, dude, you have a rear brake and a throttle. Just roll off. <laughs> I feel like it's less skilled now with more electronics. Mm -hmm. Like everybody's transitioning and like I've never had any electronics. So I'm very used to using the rear brake and like wheeling and coming down like road Atlanta uh, the last turn coming into the main straightaway and having to use a rear brake. Otherwise your rear tire is going to come off the ground, like way too much because of all the elevation. Sure. I mean, these are, there's, this is one of those things where I, I couldn't really take a side on the argument because the electronics probably keep a lot of people from hurting themselves. Um, and that kind of thing. But on the other hand, even, even back when slipper clutches became fairly common and started to become o, like, you know, come on OEM bikes. It was kind of like, this is taking a skill away because to me, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but in a car or a bike matching revs on a, on a downshift is like just one of the most fun feelings to <laughs> get right. Flip of the throttle is all you need to, to rev right. get up before you downshift. Get that now, on the other, If you're going racing, you're not at a track day. Okay. Well, a, yeah. It's probably just going to give you an advantage and you need all the advantages you can get. If the other guy has a slipper clutch, you probably need to have a slipper clutch, but when you're learning, like, no, don't get a slipper clutch. Like, learn to match revs. Yeah, you know, I will say 2011, 2012, 13, and 14, I didn't have a slipper clutch. It was only until I got the Triumph in 2015 that I had a slipper clutch. So I raced for a year in novice, two years in expert before I even had a slipper clutch. And sure. once I had the slipper clutch, I was like, 
holy shit, you're telling me my competitors had this the whole time? Like, are you kidding me? And so once I'm a firm believer in start with shitty machinery, start with something cheap, whatever it is, whether it's a mountain bike, whether it's a motorcycle, whether it's yeah, a yeah. car, start with something that's lesser, a uh, slower engine, maybe not, not all the bells and whistles, no electronics, no quick shifter, yeah. no slipper clutch, go out and race that bike for years and then upgrade to something that's legitimate and you're, you'll be blown away. You'll automatically just drop time. You'll be faster. You can start working on other stuff, but you've already developed those fundamental skills that that are needed. Like if I started with a thousand cc motor, uh, an engine, I should say, um, I would be focusing more on my top speed, accelerating on straightaway instead of working on my braking, my handling, my cornering skills as much. Like I agree, I agree, a hundred percent. Buddy uh, of mine there's... had like a, a thousand, and I had a six hundred starting out, both stock bikes, and uh, he was always two to three seconds slower than me a lap because he just can't use all that power. You know, there's a certain point where you don't need another 60, 80 horsepower on a motorcycle. Yeah, I, I think there's two pieces of what you're saying. One, you won't appreciate the Oland suspension if you haven't ridden on the stock, like, sure. you know, whatever, whatever it is that your bike had, you know, you won't appreciate the slipper clutch if you didn't have it, you know, but you also have a very difficult time if you get on a bike that doesn't have it if you're used to it. Sure. But then the horsepower argument, though, that's a whole different thing. And I, I've been down that road because uh, I... I had a Ducati Monster. I still have it, a Ducati Monster S2R1000. Uh, and I, I most of my track riding I did on a Jixxer 750, which I no longer have. But the 750 was a little too fast for me. And it made it difficult for me to work on my skills because I was scaring myself into the braking zones because that bike would be going 30 mile an hour faster than I was used to. And um, I did some track days on a KTM Duke 642. Single wow. cylinder, 60 horsepower-ish, 55, 60 horsepower. And oh my god, it was so different. I mean, obviously the bike isn't nearly as fast or competent as a as a, a Jixer, but you know, I didn't even have to brake coming into some corners that I, you know, and and I would have people pass me in four cylinders and then be on the brakes and I'd repass them, still on the throttle, <laughs> you know, because I'm only going ninety and they came into that corner at one hundred and forty or something, and yeah, it makes a huge difference because you can totally concentrate on all those little those little things you need to concentrate on rather than just spending all day going oh god like where do i where do i hit the brakes and actually like manage to turn in and you never turn in right because you're so worried about even just getting slowed down and yeah but that's uh, that really actually even in the electronics thing too right because i feel like the electronics one of the funny things about the electronics is it's put a lot of novice riders on thousands uh that bmw a thousand rr is like such a common bike at the track now uh, among fast guys and slow people you know what i mean and but the problem is i mean it's a freaking rocket ship <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so much bike for people i just had a guy take the msf course and he's like yeah i just got a 2022 jixer 1000 i'm like oh no like this guy's gonna fucking die like somebody yeah. who's stalling there like how okay here's another question for you how many times and i don't know the answer to this but um, how many times do you think it's reasonable for someone to stall a motorcycle when learning how to ride? Mm, that's a tough one, and it also depends on the bike. Say, say like a, a 250 class. In our group, we have a lot of TU Suzuki TU250s, the X model, and also um, quite a few of the Kawasaki brand-new 2021. I did the motorcycle safety course on a Honda Rebel. 
That sounds like maybe yeah, similar bikes. Rebels, yeah. And also the the Z one twenty fives, the Gram equivalent. Oh yeah, those are little then. Okay, yeah. I that I mean I that would be fine, but I would rather be on something a little bigger to learn, but you know. Um uh, yeah, I don't know, but I know exactly what you're talking about. I even remember when I was taking the motorcycle safety course, which was so long ago, there was a woman that dropped out of the course because they did the part where they teach you the clutch thing. Yeah. And she just didn't get it, but we had to move on. So when we moved on to doing like the going through the cones and the swerving and the counter steer and all that, she was still trying to figure out the clutch. And it it just made everything else upset because she just kept popping it out and either stalling the bike or the bike would jerk up and down and you know so, so yeah I, I don't know what a reasonable amount is because that's that's the funny thing at those sort of courses in particular the disparity in skill is and even at the track i've seen people like that actually we were talking earlier about uh the different the progression of different people the, the there are certain people that just seem like a glutton for punishment and you're just sort of like how are you having fun because they just keep coming back to the racetrack but they just just don't like it's nothing against anybody you know but it's just not for them they're just not getting it you know what i mean and like i don't i don't know i don't know why but it just doesn't look fun you know like you're you're just getting scared you're driving off the racetrack for no reason like like you know and nobody seems to understand how to explain to you that like these are the things you do because you're too scared i don't know yeah so i don't know i don't know i mean it just depends on the person i guess for sure, everybody's got their own uh, limits of how far they can push themselves um, and how far they're willing to push and, and how fast they want to go. So everybody's a little different in mm -hmm. how fast they learn. And uh, some people want to stay a novice and never progress at it into intermediate. Some people spend a half a day in novice and go up right up to advanced. It's all it's very different. Yeah. I, I never got fast when I was track riding. I mean, I, I rode in advanced, but I wasn't. I, I not what i would consider fast especially when i watch people ride but my very first track day i dragged a knee because because i was just like i don't know i, I was like this is awesome <laughs> you know like it was, it was just super cool but but it wasn't like i ever really got good at riding if that makes sense you know what i mean it was decent but like you, you, there's a lot of nuance beyond just going out there and being able to touch your knee to the ground so yeah. what got you into the track? Was it photography or was it motorcycles? That, well, that's an interesting question. Um, where do I start? Uh, let me, let me, let me, let me back up here a second. Um, well, first off, photography is not my main job. I'm a network engineer. Okay. Uh, uh, and I got my first network engineer job in like Oh five, uh, at university of Dayton. And, um, was making okay money there um, and still trying to finish school and stuff, which I didn't. I'm a senior. Uh, basically, I have a degree in photography. But uh, I got another job after that, and uh, that job paid like double what the one I had was. And so at 27 years old, I bought my first motorcycle, um, which was a old Triumph 250. And uh, it was kind of a basket case, even though it was a very good looking bike that somebody had restored or whatever, but it's just an old seventies triumph. The shifters on the wrong side. That's what I learned with the shifter on the wrong side yeah. and the rear brake on the opposite then. Uh, so then I bought my Ducati monster S2 R 1000, which is air cooled 1000. So not still a pretty fast bike though. Um, and I 
I started hanging out with the guys from the local Ducati club who like to ride down in uh, the Southeast Ohio, Ohio Hills, like, like Hawking Hills area and all that. And some of those guys started doing track days. So within a year or so of riding, uh, I ended up at the racetrack and then it just, I was just hooked. You know what I mean? Like it just, it's funny. Like, I'm, I, I don't know if the word is over it at this point, but like, I'm, I'm good. You know, I, I've gone through the cycle of life of track rider or whatever. I never went and raced. I've done a little dirt racing, but I mean, I'm reluctant to even call it racing. Cause I'm, you know, not that fast, but, but, uh, I, uh, I got in track riding and a lot of my friends were doing track riding and it was sort of that sort of thing where we rode for a few years or whatever. Uh, and then the photography thing happened because I, I kind of honestly was sort of fed up with some of the track photographers at the time and having an almost degree in photography and, and had been shooting since I was in eighth grade. I was like, I can, I can do this better than these guys. And so I started doing that and that just sort of kept me at the racetrack. But instead of spending like insane amounts of money, <laughs> I was making money and I was like, oh, this is this ain't so bad. And for a while I tried to ride and shoot at the same time, but it, it, it was really a big hassle. It was difficult not to mention the fact having other people shoot for me is a whole other hassle, um, a liability hassle and, and, a, and a quality of work hassle and just getting people to show up. Yeah. Like, yeah. And getting uh, good talent when, when they're there. Say again. And getting good talent when they actually do show up. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it, it's, it's tough. I mean, honestly to find, uh, this is not, not any sort of brag or anything like that, but to find somebody who has all of the right, stuff to do this is 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 odd it's hard because somebody can be a good photographer but can they deal with the consistency and the volume of shooting you know 15,000 photographs in two days that's and a then, lot of pictures and, th and then turning them around and getting them back out for people to view within a few days doesn't your uh, finger hurt after all that no I just you can just hold the shutter down <laughs> I, I do bursts right like uh um the the one dx mark ii probably shoots 14 frames a second so um you know and when you're going through a corner i might burst off five frames or so or more depending on whatever um so it's not like i'm hitting the shutter fifteen thousand times um but the, the ergonomics on the pro cameras are also just very good you know they're they're made for this but but getting somebody who can who, who can just do all of those things and then also as that sort of the compute like you you totally understand because doing this podcast is a similar deal like there's more to it than just sitting in front of a camera and talking to somebody oh yeah there's, there's stuff you got to do afterwards even even if it's basic you yeah, know all the editing and all the like i'm sure you go through like oh this picture is blurry you got to delete this one that, that one's no good he's not in the frame like i'm sure there's tons of uh editing there, that goes on before you even like publish all the photos there's a process the workflow i guess is actually the and, and you have to develop sort of a workflow that works for you. Uh, and not to mention the travel and all that as well and being willing to stand in the sun and, and so on and so forth. But um, Evan, who has come on with SDT, is doing a great job. He, he, he fits, but he's one of the first people, I've, new people I've seen in a while that really gets it. You know what I mean? I saw um, you working with a, a little kid over the weekend. <laughs> that was Jeff Taylor's kid. Um, he, he, he was... I actually told him he could shoot one of my cameras. Uh, 
when we we're going to do fireworks and he just got it in his head he was like you said you'd put a camera in my hand i was like nah, all right <laughs> <laughs> poor he's too he's too small to even get his hands around the camera but i it's 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 funny too like like people are just like you're like you just gave him like six thousand dollars and like <laughs> it's well it's six thousand dollars because it's rugged it's fine like he's yeah. not he's not gonna break it and the funny thing with kids are too i i don't have kids by the way but the funny thing i've noticed with kids is if you treat them a little bit like an adult and give them um some responsibility they actually do have a lot of respect for what you've put in their hands you know what i mean yeah. like he's but yeah, he he was just taking pictures of his dad and stuff and trying to trying to trying to figure it out. Did you see did you see me from the racetrack? Yeah, I did. I saw you over in uh, uh turn after, five and six. Yeah, yeah, turn five and six after the jump. I saw you over there. Yeah. I I wanted to take him out to like one or something, but and I do take people at Groton anyway. Some tracks I will take people out with me if they want to go because Groton's pretty cool, but I wasn't sure about taking somebody that young out to any of the areas that weren't sort of like, I, I don't know, e even if he was fine and he didn't do anything bad, like I'm not, that's another thing you have to work, watch out for, right? I mean, people, everybody's a critic. Um, a few years back, Kenny White's girlfriend came out to turn two with me uh, at Gingerman and she, she was, and we were standing so so a, a little funny thing about the racetrack right and when i was talking about liability earlier this is an, another deal right like i had somebody shoot for me once at gingerman also while i was riding and she immediately walked over to the um, impact zone and turn one to shoot and like i get it the good shots are in the impact zone at any corner but there's a reason we don't stand there i mean it's kind of obvious to most of us and i was just like oh my god i'm gonna i'm gonna get freaking sued into the moon because somebody's gonna get killed like and i'm just like this guy that i don't make that much money doing this like i can't but anyway um so kenny white's girlfriend came out to two with me and my point is on the inside of a corner you can stand as close to the track as you want now some tracks aren't cool with that but from my own safety standpoint i don't i don't care it's it's like i'm not i'm not going to get hit on the inside of the racetrack my my only thing is i, I don't want to distract you guys but if i don't make a bunch of sudden movements and you see me the first time you go by, you probably know I'm going to be there the next time. You know, it seems to be fine. Well, she's, she's at the inside of the corner with me and we're not even on the edge of the track. We're probably 20 feet off the racetrack, but, but, uh, she's, she's like, Oh, Kenny's coming around. I was like, Oh, cool. I'll get a picture of you with Kenny going by in the background. <laughs> and she posted on Facebook and it seemed fine to me, but people like some people just, Oh, oh they're irresponsible. And, you know, and it just caused a big, like like ruckus like like you know like you're not and she's like okay so you gotta you just gotta like not you know as somebody who's making money doing this like i don't i don't want to upset anybody i don't want to I, I don't want the owners to have to deal with any kind of liability or just backlash on the internet and so it's 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 annoying because like that sort of stuff is fun you know that stuff's interesting but then like anything these days, it, it gets ruined by our litigious society. <laughs> You're always going to get those keyboard warriors, but last time they were on a track was like 1954. <laughs> and, well, yeah, I mean, these it's just, uh, you know, it, well, okay, full circle to like what we were talking about, about the different groups, right? There are so many different people that come to these racetracks and they all know each other in their little cliques, right? But they don't all know each other. 
it's it's it's, it's funny it, there, so it, there's there's like a clicky sort of a there, there's just a, like a lot of little groups of people that are close friends and then and they you know some of them get judgy or whatever sure it's, you it's, know i've noticed uh a lot of people group together based on their speed or their skill level so like i'm gonna talk to eddie Kraft because he's like the next guy above me you know and so i like i want to talk to the guy oh, for sure for sure because you can ride can, with him yeah I'm, I'm riding with him it's like oh did you see that thing that happened right in front of us like that's a camaraderie thing like you you build bonds based on like uh having traumatic experiences right <laughs> yeah it's, speed, crab, crab, it's, crab, it's, a, it's a trust thing too right yeah. yeah for sure yeah speed and region but def definitely that's an interesting point about speed because at the end of the day this happens in all motorcycle communities you, you go dirt bike riding with your friend at the off-road park there's that one friend that you're like i don't know if i want to call him because he can never keep up and like y'all like him you want to hang out with him but you know he's going to kind of have a bad time because and vice versa you know all that you like and the same deal with yeah it's it's, it's all the same in, in the, the track day riding too like you want to be able to ride together but i don't want to have to like slow down 50 percent to hang out with you right yeah that's it's like they will just meet up at the end of the day <laughs> yeah but that's a funny point too because i think there's a lot of people that also like just feel like they deserve respect because they're fast and it's just like yeah you're not that fast <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean like, i mean it's all relative it's absolutely uh what's the guy that was riding the triumph for stt um which one <laughs> uh, the short guy he's a he's a he's a he's he's fast fast he's a pro um yeah 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 exactly uh before the repave at gingerman were you there for that you hear about this you know what i'm talking about he was uh i think he's got a track record there yeah well this is the day he showed up he flew in got a rental car showed up at gingerman from georgia probably wherever he lives yeah um shows up the, the his race prepped triumph that that apex was 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 doing for him richard, set up right yeah richard and at the time uh, they had that one guy working for him that anyway whatever um, and and i think dustin boyd and uh some of those other guys were the sort of the fast track gay guys at the time right. you know and uh he shows up and i mean that was that was one of those days where i was just like oh that's fast like <laughs> Dustin Boyd isn't fast. Dustin Boyd's a fast expert guy for sure. He's nobody to be scoffed at, but uh, he's not Jason he, DeSalvo. Neither am I. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah well, exactly right. And it's like you don't get a lot of opportunities though to see that at a track day. Like you know, Valentino Rossi doesn't show up to your track day and embarrass everybody, <laughs> but he absolutely would. Like he'd he'd embarrass DeSalvo, right? You know, sure. but. DeSalvo showed up and was just passing everybody, including the fastest guys, like they were going backwards and wheeling out of every corner and sliding. And and I remember sitting there talking to him and he's talking to everybody else and he's talking about how he was getting on the throttle before the apex, like he was pinning the throttle before. And everybody's just looking at him like he's a freaking crazy person. But I was watching him ride and I'm like, yeah, that's absolutely what he's doing. And I'm like looking at it like how how is I don't I don't get it. Uh, he needs a different jock strap that's uh that's a custom one because uh his balls are so big that barely fit in the suit. Right. But but that's the thing, that's only half of it. Because if you had balls that big, you could go out there and twist the throttle just as hard at the same time and you'd probably end up in the grass somewhere on your head. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know what he was doing. 
but he 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 like it, it and and this was on pre repave giant seam in the middle of the racetrack gingerman i mean i remember seeing novice riders crying because of that seam like just yeah so so i mean i don't know i mean it's it, over the years it's kind of like i don't really care if you're fast <laughs> like no the thing for me like jason DeSalvo is one of the one of my biggest mentors in my life as far as motorsports goes because i took his jason DeSalvo speed academy in 2012 uh two different courses i took it at gingerman and i took it at barber motorsports yeah. in, in alabama and uh it's amazing his philosophies and his teachings and, and the, the method that he uses to teach his students. Mm -hmm. Very next round, I went to uh, Nelson Ledges. I won every race that I finished by a large margin. And I was fighting with the experts for podiums overall. Okay. And, so you were yellow plate and caught up with the white plate guys. Yeah. And I'm finishing on the podium in the in overall expert class. And uh, it's like, wow. Um, just, just one one meeting with him changed my whole philosophy. And it's like, it, it, it made me from looking at twists of the wrist and like kind of thinking I know what was going on to like having him literally follow me and GoPro me uh, on the rider behind at Jason DeSalvo's following Eric Swan. I'm like, this is surreal. Um, what did, I mean, what did he tell you? Well, it was, it was a lot about body position. It was about being really precise with the controls they would uh i remember they had a, a motorcycle in the in the tower of barber so we had our classroom at like the third third level at the at the barber towering and score timing and scoring center and we were in the classroom session and he would we would have us he would have us sit on on top of the motorcycle and he'd pull us forward and he said okay you we want you to see precise braking so he would pull us forward and then we would see how precise we were with the, with controls moving a half a mile an hour going three feet. Right. And you would see the student in front of you do it and be like super uh, not smooth with the controls, be really jerky or. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then you get on it and you do the same thing. You're like, Oh man, I thought it'd be way smoother than that. And so his whole point with this particular exercise was to, to say like, you think you're smooth. You need to be like way, way, way smoother than you think you are right now. Yeah, turn up the resolution. Yeah, to to be that fine, like there, it comes from gross skills when you're first learning it to 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 fine skills and then to professional mm -hmm. ultra fine, you know. And so. Yeah, yeah, something that it, it, that not it's not just something you can learn from a textbook. It, it's it's from repetition. Right, and so every control you have, whether it's applying the throttle whether it's getting on the front brake, getting on the rear brake, doing your shift, make uh, releasing the clutch, whatever you're, you're, you mm -hmm. have, the contact point with the bike, turning the bars, every single impact that you have with the motorcycle should be as smooth as you can possibly make it to make the motorcycle comply with your control. So you put an input into it, it's not going to fight you, it's not going to try to react to you, it's going to just make that control yep. and be in place with where you want it to be and one of the drills i had a problem with when he first did it was we're gonna go at 50 to 60 percent of our pace i'm like i've never done that that feels dangerous to me i don't want to go that slow this is stupid like why am i doing this drill and so we go around and it's literally jason DeSalvo, 
Eddie Kraft, Eric Swan in a line. And and I'm like, can we please go faster? Like I'm I'm starting to look around. I'm like, when can I make a pass? Until I realize that, oh, the point of this drill is if you can't do it perfectly at 50%, how can you do it perfectly at 60% and, and start increasing those percentages to get to 70, 80, 90, 100%? Yep, 100% if, yeah. you, if you can't do it perfectly, hitting your perfect breaking point, hitting your apex, hitting your exit point, getting to the next entry point, apex, exit, and, and so on and so forth throughout every puzzle piece of the racetrack, you can't move on safely to the next level. And the next level is the next percentage point of your of your speed. Yeah, so, so it's another tenth of a second or another or more. Yeah, yeah, every every little bit. So breaking it down into like go fifty percent of the of your pace around the racetrack until it's perfect seemed stupid at first, but when you when you really put it in, into practice and you apply it that way, it makes a lot of sense. But most people don't have that that I guess patience or that willingness to like take a step back and like say. I'm riding over my head. I need to slow down so I don't crash and kill myself or run into that guardrail. Or at um, the very least, you're just not learning anything because you're just basically you're putting out fires instead of like just working on your your actual skill. You're being reactive and not crashing instead of being proactive and riding smart. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, which is that's such a funny thing too, right? Because uh um even right, once I started doing track riding for a while, we'd go riding on the street and sometimes we'd have a couple non-track riders go with us and we'd be single gear, no brakes. And we'd get to the stop sign, wait for the guys. And the guys that didn't track ride would be like, Oh my God, you you guys must be so dangerous. How are you going so fast? And you're just like, I don't even know what to say. Like um, what you're describing and you reminded me of something. This is, but this is another thing that I think about at the track a decent amount. Um, so when I grew up, I played basketball. My my dad was into basketball, so I played basketball through grade school, all through high school, and I went to basketball camps in the summer. I played a ton of basketball. And what you're describing is exactly how you got good at basketball. Um, when I was good, I could I, I I could hit 18 free throws in a row was the best I could do. Um, I've I've been to some camps where like the, uh, there's a camp in Richmond where Dick Baumgartner's shooting camp. That guy was the halftime show, and he could hit 100 free throws in a row. Wow. Yeah, and uh, his son could hit, I can't remember how many three-pointers in a row or whatever, but but the thing is, it was repetition, it was muscle memory, and it was that fine, uh, that that fi- like that, that really granular skill, dialing it in, dialing in exactly your form and your, and your uh, and the fundamentals of all of it. And whenever you listen to or talk to any, uh, even a college-level Division One player, but especially an NBA player, and then you get to a level like a Larry Bird or somebody who's a legend, basically, None of them came to that just as pure talent. They had talent, but then they they worked their asses off to get that good and continued to work their asses off, like like doing exactly what you just described, like just going and practicing the fundamentals constantly. Um, but in racing, I find it fascinating because in basketball, you just need a pair of shoes and a ball. Racing, I mean, like, just getting the opportunity to practice is expensive, you know, and, and the equipment that you need to bring is expensive, you know? And so it's like, there's this, like the, just getting to the point where you're actually just spending time practicing, like, whereas with basketball, it's like, just get up early in the morning and go shoot 
in, <laughs> in, a, in a regimented way for two hours. Sure. It's, it's, uh, racing is one of the only sports or one of the one, only ones that I can think of that you practice your actual craft very few amount of times in the whole season. Like, uh, so I've been getting into super, something called supermoto motard racing, which is uh, a mix of pavement and dirt for mm-hmm. bikes familiar with, with, it. Yeah. with uh, slick tires. And so this is what I should have been doing 10 years ago. This is what I would recommend everybody to start in before they get into road racing. Yeah. Uh, because it's so cheap. When you crash, it's not a yard sale. It's it's like almost nothing breaks. Almost nothing on you breaks. Um, dirt bikes are fantastic. It's it's great. <laughs> and so like a, a, a Supermoto track day is like 60 to $80, depending on if you have a membership or not. Um, you yeah. don't have your tires. You barely use any gas. There's I did some mini bike racing you. for a while. I think it's a similar deal. XR100 yeah. racing. Exactly. Yeah. I have a Kawasaki uh klx 300 supermoto which is um a little faster than a 250 but it's not really a 450 class mm-hmm. bike it's kind of in the middle but um it's street legal i can take it on the street it's my grocery getter although i haven't actually gotten groceries on it yet <laughs> but sure. it's, it's a nice fun little bike um it's the slowest bike i've ever owned um it's a little slower than the ninja 250 i had in 08 so slow bikes are, are so much fun in my personal it's a dirt bike but yeah it's it's um the lowest as far as uh lowest risk for getting arrested or speeding because mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of hard to do that i might be top speed maybe 94 miles an hour going downhill and a full talk drafting somebody so it's yeah. like <laughs> you're not going to go that fast on it have uh, you done actual dirt riding so yeah i've done some with that bike i've been doing great lake supermoto which um you could probably come out and maybe do some uh, photography for at some point but they do. They have a flat track over at Jackson Speedway, and they I really, do, uh, I really enjoy. It. I've done a little bit of flat track myself, but I've also photographed a decent amount of flat track, which I really enjoy. Yeah, so at Jackson Speedway, it's very unique. I've never been to a circuit like this or a facility that has a cart track that's about twenty-five seconds on a supermoto. Um, it's they have a um, a motocross section that Will has built himself, and uh, they have uh, the flat track. So they do. Pavement to motocross to flat track back to pavement, and they make three different racetracks into one lap. That sounds pretty cool. That sounds kind of like flat track TT racing, but that's still all dirt. Yeah. So it's um, sometimes they'll say, okay, we're doing pavement only, and everybody just do pavement section. They'll they'll stop for maybe a half hour, do uh, do big bikes, and say do the whole lap, do all three three sections. And then they'll stop and say, let's do minis. So 50 to 150 CC and maybe a half hour of that. Um, gotcha. But there's no real novice intermediate advance, which is kind of cool because it's not like a racer practice. They got kids out there, like nine years old, I think. Sure. Yeah. Next to me. And it's I, I think it's cool. Even as a racer myself, I'm not like, oh, this guy's too slow. I'm like, I want to help this kid. Uh, I might tap my tail like, hey, come follow me. I might even slow down for a little, little bit while he while I... Yeah, 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 and uh, like kind of show him the line for a section or two, and then maybe take off again. Right. And maybe come up to him in another couple of minutes when I find him again on the track. Um, you haven't you haven't done any actual like knobby tire like trail dirt riding or anything like that though. So I've rode my cousin's, I think it was I, Yamaha 
IT one seventy five, like an eighty six mm -hmm. dirt bike. Um, I really have almost zero dirt bike experience other than the supermoto stuff, and a couple of times in the trails with my cousin. Um, but you're you're getting a feel for it though. I, I I see, I can see what you're saying because I experienced a similar thing, but through single track riding. Yeah. Um, and actually, I haven't been back on the track since I got into that, and I, I haven't. I haven't dirt ridden too much in this last year, but I did for quite a bit for a few years. And the thing I learned so much about was how the bike acts when it doesn't have traction. Um, and I think you're learning the same thing going from dirt to asphalt and back and forth and all that. But the front end pushes, what do you do? You, you roll on the throttle. That's, that's what you do. Like, and when that first happens, it's hard to like train your brain to do it, you know? Like, but once you get used to it, it's like, no, this isn't really a joke. Like, it's not like everybody jokes. Oh, well, turn the throttle and it'll, you know, it'll end the suspense. Like, well, well, but sure. But the reality is it actually probably is going to fix your problem. Yeah, like, because it puts the bike in a, in a working mode with the suspension. The bike wants to have power. The bike mm -hmm. wants to be in a, in a mode where the rear tire has pressure on it and is actually spinning maybe a small amount. Yeah. Uh, and so... If you're pushing, if the front is about to tuck and you roll on the throttle just a little bit, what's going to happen? Taking, you're also taking weight off the front. Yeah. The weight transfers to the rear tire. So there's less weight on the front tire. So mm -hmm. there's less chance you're going to tuck the front. It's going to, it's going to weight the motorcycle to the rear. Now you're going to be in a position where you can drive and start to turn easier because now there's less pressure on the front tire. Yeah. So it's like this whole transfer of weight. It's, it's, motorcycling and what Keith code teaches in twist of the wrist is whenever you're rolling on the throttle, do so in a smooth, consistent, and even fashion until the throttle is, is, is rolled on and you're not chopping the throttle. It's yeah, like yeah. always consistent, even progressive throttle roll on. It's never chopping. It's never inconsistent or rolling on, rolling off. Rolling on, rolling off. That's that's a consistent thing we see in new riders, and it's right. supposed to be a consistent, deliberate action. It's not like it's a willy nilly. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. It's always the same, always mm -hmm. uh, consistent with it. Well, it's it's an interesting thing because the science aside, you can think about it as you know, and and I, I think you're 100 right, all of it. But going out and feeling it over and over again comes back to what you're talking about with the salvo like you you have to like practice it and you have to learn like how to react in those it situations counterintuitive because you think well i'll just roll off because i think i'm going too fast but if you're in that situation rolling off will make it worse rolling off will transfer all the weight to the front tire yeah. and you already feel like you're pushing the front in that situation so you you're probably you go ride in the sand. It's 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 like uh, the sand. It's it's hundred percent about the throttle. the The front end won't do any. If you're not on the throttle, you're falling down. Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's it is what it is. But it's a uh, it yeah. It's it's funny. It's, like you got you have to like train your brain to like yeah, learn all that counterintuitive stuff. You you can't train it by reading a book, even though all the things you're saying, all the things in the Keith Code book, it helps you understand why. But until you go out and do it, you ever heard the term "smell the elephants"? No, I don't think so. It's it's a funny term. I forget I forget what book that's from. It's from something. But uh, um, 
basically basically the whole the whole concept is you could be a a, a phd on elephants in africa you know you could have read all the books and went to school and all that but until you actually go to africa and and smell the elephant poop <laughs> in, in the middle of the jungle like you don't really truly understand the elephants yeah and it's the same thing like you totally understand counter steer you understand the geometry of the bike changes when the when the rear end squats and the front end under braking squats and all that but so you go out there and just do it over and over and over again <laughs> like you, you you just you're not gonna be good at it like just, sure yeah and you just got to develop that your own feel, your own style, your own feel. Like everybody's got a different style, like I said before, and no two riders are exactly the same. They all go through a corner a little bit differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that's it's it's interesting because you 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 figure that stuff out in different ways. And and it, I, I flat track, I think, is one of those things that I I've only done a little bit of like quarter mile small bike flat track stuff, but I've watched. I've been to mile flat track, which blows my mind. I don't know if you've ever been to a mile flat track event. You know uh, they do 140 been, uh, on straights? I've, I've only worked the Daytona flat track event, which I think is probably uh, much shorter, maybe eighth mile. Okay. Um. Well, half mile is fairly common. Quarter mile slow. Mile, they're doing 140 in the straights, and they're doing 90 to 100 in the corners. Yeah, they're ripping. They're, they're not just putzing around the corner. No, they're doing 90 mile an hour with the rear end out and steel shoe on the ground and they don't have front brakes i mean it's, it's so the indy mile actually was a was a very popular event when moto gp was here in indianapolis um i actually okay real quick uh, you may, maybe you've seen that video from 2009 when uh, when cammy roberts was at the indy mile i don't know if yeah. you've seen that on the tz 750 okay. i was there I, I was very lucky to have been there because i didn't understand what i was witnessing at the time as well as i do now but it was it was the sort of thing where the hairs on the back of your neck stand up like nobody nobody knew what was going to happen when he took that 752 stroke out like they thought maybe maybe he's gonna do parade laps he did not do parade laps <laughs> and valentino rossi was there and he was looking at kenny roberts like you're my hero wow. like like it, it, i mean you know he's a moto gp champion you know but um it's it's interesting in in this vein in this discussion a lot of the great moto gp riders have that flat track background and the reason i think that is is because if you want to practice that skill that granular skill of riding on the edge and having the rear it, and feeling what the bike feels like when it's loose and being comfortable with it being loose flat track is the place to be because the bike's all over the place you're you know you're you're managing like a crash the whole time practically you know i mean pretty you, much you, like you just kind of putting your foot down saving crashes here and there and it's, yeah it's, you literally uh, wear a steel ship steel slipper to do it yeah uh so <laughs> i never wore the steel toe it was for me i think it's more of like a buggy track i don't know how many motorcycles they really have around that because there's like big chunks of like asphalt and concrete and all kinds of stuff like um it was it was not a completely it was it was freshly groomed so there was no line when i did it it was all just did, were you able to put your foot down though and slide it Oh yeah, I was sliding. Yeah. I, I was sliding around, but like, for when Great Lakes Supermoto used it, I was like the only person who was using the full circuit. When Great Lakes Supermoto was using it, they would enter the track, do about half of the lap, and then exit, and right. just use it as a quick like transition. But I was, I talked to Will, and I was like, "Can I just like do some laps on this flat track? Because I just want to do laps and stay on here for like an hour." He's like, "Yeah, you can do that. Just like be careful of people are coming on." 
you know, don't go too wide or watch out for them when they're entering or exiting. But um, you know how to enter a track, so just do your thing. So I just stayed on the supermoto, the the flat track part of it, and uh, was just trying to do laps. But there's no groove, there's no line. I was just trying to make my yeah. own line, and it was uh, my first time on it. So I'm just really just trying to stay on the motorcycle, not fall down. There's a couple of times like gets pretty squirrely, and you're like, oh god, I just chipped myself yeah. a little bit just trying to stay on the bike. <laughs> it's it's a bizarre feeling, but it's something you can get used to, you know. But the thing is, like when I rode my Jixxer 750, when it got loose for me at my skill level, that was like a pucker moment. It wasn't like, I, you know, it was like when that happened, it was like, okay, now I have to figure out what to do on my 140 horsepower, you know, almost 400 pound motorcycle. Like, and I, I don't know, maybe had read the Keith book code books enough to know to not chop the throttle or whatever. And, and, and I, and, and I made it through it, but I certainly didn't feel competent. Like I, I, I know how to handle this or I know how to repetitively do this. It was more like, I'm I'm recovering from a problem sort of situation when the rear end would step or the front end would push on that bike. And now I feel like having, having done some dirt riding, I feel like I'm probably just be able to hurt myself a lot better, honestly, because I'll probably feel like, Oh, it's fine. It's sliding. No big deal. And then, you know, then you, you know what I mean. <laughs> There's a very fine line between where it's fine and it's okay to push as a pro racer who's doing it seven times, uh, you know, every few months. And as if, and, and then you go over the limit as uh, someone who hasn't done it in a while and you're like, oh, that was a little too far. <laughs> yeah. And once it's too far, it's too far. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, no, no coming back from it. At no a certain good. Level. Yeah. It's so. like, I love those pictures from photographers where they're like, is this a crash or save? And it's right at that limit where you're like, Oh man, he could do this and probably save it, or this could be a yard sale. That's actually so. So I've done a decent amount of flat track shooting for the AMA, and then I've also done a couple of hill climbs. Okay. Um, and that those events are some of my favorites for this reason, right? Because catching a moment like you're describing in road racing, eh, you know, there's maybe one or two riders that you might be able to get some of those sort of shots with, but for the most part, I mean, you're just not getting that, right? But flat track, every lap they come by, they're sideways. It's so cool. They're always out of control. Yeah, they, they look <laughs> they look awesome. They look like a drift car on two wheels. I mean, you know, and the hill climbs were also awesome because uh, have you ever been to a hill climb? You know, I feel like that's one aspect of motorsports that I might never do is hill climb. Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't blame you, honestly. But I, if you haven't attended and watched one, I encourage it because it's so cool. It's <laughs> basically, run, I don't think, no. It's it's like drag racing up a hill, but the hills usually have steps. There's usually four or five, six steps. So like steep hill, flat part, steep hill, flat part. So inevitably there's jumps. And depending on how fast the bike is, you might jump each step or you might skip one, <laughs> you know, up the hill. Yeah. Um, Clearing like so, a 50 foot gap at, at, in the meantime probably bigger than 50 feet yeah um the uh, but the so the photographic opportunities are badass i mean for one where i can stand they don't care <laughs> it's unlimited pretty much yeah two though you got bikes in the air like ready to they loop wheelies all the time they throw chains all the time like i mean it, there's epic crashes and they, they run four wheelers up them too and it's just it's fucking cool like <laughs> like just I got this picture. I'll have to. I'll have to show it to you. Like of uh, of this uh, 
It's a guy in this 252 stroke with an extended swing arm, uh, Kawasaki. So KZ 250s, Kawasaki with an extended swing arm. And it is vertical, like straight up and down. Yeah. And the dude is like his head is over the front wheel because he's, you know, like, like it's just, it's, it's freaking cool. You know, like, cause it's just commitment. Yeah. But it's like a 10 second race like, right. up the hill. And, and most people, I mean, it's, it's not one of those things where it's not one of those sort of hill climbs where you think like people don't like, you know, like if you made it, you won. No, everybody makes it up the hill. It's how fast you can get up the hill, you know? Yeah. Um, or think like, uh, there was another bike that was a, uh, a Kawasaki, uh, the, uh, KZ 500, but with an H2 motor in it. Oh man, the Kawasaki H2, that's like a turbocharged everything. You can uh, and have. It, was, it was a big, uh, three cylinder, two stroke. Um, probably making hundred ish horsepower, one hundred and ten, with a super long swing arm, and yeah, I mean, just like it, it's just the coolest shit shows up the hill climbs. I don't know, they're just neat, but yeah, be interesting you know. to go to one. It's like uh, it's like Redneck Central, right? Yeah, well, and there's there's amateur and there's pro. Um, actually, the first one I ever went to was in Oregonia, Ohio, okay. and that was that was a pro hill climb. They sold beer at the bottom of the hill because so so the the hill they went up was on one side there and the hill you watched on was the other and none of the other hill climbs that i've been to have been like this like you just kind of sit at the bottom and watch but this was so to get a good view you would walk up the other side of the hill and it was super steep so so you didn't have to walk up and down to get beer all the time they sold beer in uh recycled gallon milk jugs (laughs) so so you bought a gallon of beer at a time perfect (laughs) (laughs) And then just sat on the hill with some plastic cups and your friends <laughs> and watch these like nitro methane Harleys and modified dirt bikes and stuff. Just, and just, you know, go up the hill. Like, heck yeah. That's yeah, what it's cool. about, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. Right. I mean, like, in, you know, then sort of back to my point about wheelies, like wheel, wheelies are dangerous. Like what, what are we doing here? Yeah. So if I ever ran for political office, which would probably never happen, um, uh, my slogan, I think, is "Make wheelies legal again." Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like, why are they illegal? You'd get a few votes. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think I think it's okay to do wheelies. I wouldn't do it in like heavy traffic, maybe, but uh, picker time. Well, that's the funny thing, and I think it's sort of the the thing about the rules that I was sort of getting at earlier a little bit. You can tell by watching the person when they're doing a wheelie, like if that person should be doing wheelies or not <laughs> if they know what they're doing <laughs> like no that guy's fine like that guy can just ride down the interstate with the wheel in the air if he wants <laughs> doesn't matter sure. <laughs> but that other guy his friend he needs a ticket <laughs> <laughs> he's not doing it safely yeah this isn't safe he's gonna get run over and hurt somebody like it's yeah don't, you, don't like do a, wheelies. you should get like a fix it ticket like you should go to wheelie school you don't know how to what you're doing yeah, uh, like Neil Neil Scaff is that his name? Yeah, Neil. He, the super fast guy. He was he was at the Grattan Trail. I think he was at the same day you were, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he was wheeling between like three and four, <laughs> like. But you watched him do it, and you're just like, no, no he's fine. Yeah, <laughs> like, and you know what? Um, I was trying to ride with him for a little while, a couple corners at least at a time, and uh, I was behind him right when he went over the jump between four and five. And I said in my helmet, I think, I was like, Jesus. 
Like he fucking sends it. There's, I don't think there's any sort of like downshift or breaking happening before before he sends no. it. He just, no, no, he's just kind of angling it towards the apex of that corner and just like just just sending it. Just yeah. <laughs> same thing every time. Yeah, he is wheeling out of the bus stop into the into ten A ten B, but and and doing that wheelie like where he was still turning the bike as he's wheeling like. Like, like basically, like, like, hey, you you ran 19, 19s at a Weira race this year at Groton. You can just do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, uh, once you're sub 20s, I think you just get a license that you can like, it's the Ron Swanson uh, meme where it's like, I can just do whatever I want. Here's 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 my. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's a good point. They should have like a special sticker depending on your lap times. Yeah. Like once you once you turn a 20 at Groton, you get the unlimited sticker. So that way the corner worker is going to be like. No, 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 no. That that guy's fine. Yeah, he's he's good. Do whatever you yeah. want. <laughs> oh, that guy only runs thirties. Mm. You get one foot off the ground. That's it. <laughs> For sure. You know, I'm uh, pretty excited to have Neil Scalf on here. He's a uh, brother of Ryda. as his younger brother. And his uh, brother looked great at that they track. Both day, are, are like Moto America level pros. Uh, I think his brother is going to be doing Junior Cup, and mm-hmm. Neil's going to be doing a couple rounds of the Super Sports 750 class, and. Uh, He's going to be, uh, Neil's going to be coming on here as a podcast guest. So t- looking to talk to him and talked to him quite a bit at, at Granton and, uh, you know, asking him how, you know, how am I doing? That was my first track day in seven years. And I got down to 125s on a 14 year old motorcycle with used tires. So I was really happy to do that. I remember you telling me that, but then I was looking at you when I was shooting. I was like, uh, okay, I don't know. Like you haven't done a track. <laughs> I mean, you've been racing though, right? Yeah, so I've won a mountain bike championship and beginner. I won fourth overall in the state in uh, in sport uh, mountain bike racing. Um, I won a go kart championship last year, twenty twenty one. I mean, I've been involved in the sport. Like I said, I did sixteen so, events. So yeah, not doing a track day in seven years is not exactly a representative of. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been racing. I've been riding. I've been doing other stuff. I did seven mo- supermoto track days in the last year or so. So I've yeah. been at the track as much as possible. I've been around the sport, but I haven't been racing sport bikes in seven years. So it's like I haven't been on this vehicle in a long time. When I sat on the bike, I was like, "Damn, this feels weird. This feels so awkward. Like it just doesn't feel." Oh, they're much. They're yeah. I, I uh, sport bikes are so strange compared to basically every other motorcycle. You just don't really realize it if you started on them. Yeah, it's like my feet, my foot position is so high up. I'm just not used to it. And then I get out the first session. I'm like, oh, man, I dragged my knee the first session. <laughs> this is like, it's like riding a bike. Yeah, well, it, yeah, literally, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I've seen I've seen and known Neil at the track for a while, and he's always looked good. He's always been a good rider. But I don't know what he did in the last year or two because he just all of a sudden, you know, I, I was talking to uh, Hawkins. Yeah, John at, Hopkins at, at the counter day, the counterclockwise day, and yeah, I guess he 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 works with Neil some a little bit and has, has helped him. And uh, it's just like I don't know, something clicked. I guess. I mean, not that he was ever slow, but nineteens at Grattan is different than fast. Nineteens at Grattan. So my fastest is uh twenty twos both directions, which I'm proud to say. Twenty uh, twos is quick. Fast. Yeah. But uh, 19s is another level. That 19s is you're you are a pro. You should be in Moto America. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I would see Richard and David Gray show up to track weekends, uh, and sh- man, they they ride 21s 
whenever they want. I didn't see them ride 19s. Could they ride 19s? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's a track day, right? Yeah. You're also getting to the point where, you know, and I don't know that Neil was running 19s at the track day. Um, he ran it, ran it at a Weirra race, right? Um, well, same you know deal what? with the. Yeah, go uh, ahead. Blake, uh, Blake at a uh, Blackhawk. Uh, Blake was down in the 11s at Blackhawk at a track day. Yeah. And he cra- and he crashed in five because he came up on somebody way too fast. Yeah. Like, and he, he said so. He was like, yeah, yeah, maybe I, you know, it, it, the difference in speed gets to be a little too much. Like, and I think people at races might run tens or nines at Blackhawk, but they don't run 11s at track days. No, it, there's too much traffic and really, you it's know. It's a difference of speed. You can't get a clean lap. And, that and also the the people at the track days, not to disparage anybody, but um, it's it's too dangerous to do those kind of lap times at track days because to do those and there's somebody in front of you, you're gonna have to stuff them. You're gonna have to say, "I'm coming through," and and that advanced track day guy who maybe just moved up from intermediate is not gonna like you passing him three inches away from his handlebar at 20 miles an hour faster. Um, you know. I don't want to say any names, but that's why some people aren't at certain track day organizations anymore because they pass people a little too closely and they've crashed before. Well, I mean, there, there's, that's an interesting, that's an interesting point. Um, and, and I, I don't think there's a right or a wrong here. The thing is track days, a track days started out as like race or practice years ago. And it has become a, a bit of a lifestyle sport, kind of like like golfing, yeah, way, <laughs> you know, and some people and there's there's nothing wrong with this. So, and, you know, I, I want to make sure my tone of voice is correct, but that's fine. It's fun. In fact, if you buy a sport bike, what better way to use it? It's sort of a similar deal to like if you own a Ferrari, like, you know, you, you might as well take it to the racetrack, you know, that kind of thing. Go out, have fun, enjoy it. You know, but there is a difference between that and then the guy who is trying to practice those granular skills that we're talking about. Right. And where else are they going to practice? Yeah. I mean, yes, you get your Friday practice in front of your your race weekend and all that. But if you want to turn laps at your local racetracks, like when I say local, I mean, within six hours or whatever, like that's your option. Yeah. It's almost like there should be. I know there's already three levels for most track day organizations, but sometimes it would be nice to have like maybe four levels. Like you got to be your your beginner, novice, your intermediate, your advanced, but maybe there should be a, like a race less like a race license level, like a racer practice. And even yeah. within racer practice, you still have even a, a massive skill level between novice, expert, and pro who may be in the same category now. But at the very least, maybe you can just be like, look that's fine you want to ride in this level that's fine you might get stuffed yeah by the guy who's doing 10s or 11s at blackhawk <laughs> sure like you got jason farrell in the same in the same program as like a new novice racer now which mm-hmm. is maybe 10 seconds away in lap time there's you know it, there, there's something to be, that's such an interesting thing and that's something that i've seen over the years i, I don't shoot for other orgs anymore but i used to shoot for uh ducati indianapolis um and I shot for a couple like forums. Uh, you remember Asphalt Junkies? Yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, actually, my Jixxer 750 I bought from Brandon. If you know him, the guy okay. that started that. Yeah, when I won't get into that. Whatever. Um, <laughs> the 
but but I, I, sh- I shot a lot of uh off-brand stuff we'll just say non-stt stuff and not that Duc- ducati indianapolis generally ran really really good days but they 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 um they worked with some other organizations and every now and again, some weird stuff happened. And I particularly remember this other group that ran the day for them oversold the day. Oh, and, too many um, people. huh? Too many uh, riders on the track. Correct. Yeah. Well, they like their website didn't cut it off at the right time or something, but whereas STT would call people back and do the difficult thing where you say, Hey, sorry, you can't, you can't come. They didn't do that. Uh, and then on top of that, they also ran a racer school in Novice. Hmm. Yeah. Um, novice track day, not novice racer. In the novice, in the novice group, the race school ran in novice in in the same session as novice group. They just had like uh, they just had um jerseys on. There were people in the paddock crying, like, like in from no- being scared. Yes, because you had you had this race school just buzzing the novice groups all session like it was and and then on top of that intermediate was just like there was never a gap like the entire track was just full like (laughs) like like, i mean it was just it was such a shit show um there were a lot of people so from a photography standpoint it was a good opportunity to make money because just more people on track means more money but and i'm sure i'm sure that was part of the motivation of the oversold day too right i mean at the end of the day you don't turn people away you got more people paying you but it was just like there's a reason they sort of have like these unspoken numbers of like how well i mean they, they say them but like you know this track is this many miles and we can put this many people on at a time but what's interesting about it is there aren't any laws that govern that no it's all organization-based policies right right so uh, that video i did with Masera, i mean it was it was about him passing but quite a bit of the content ended up being about how track days came to be right and you've probably been to a few of those days where like one of your buddies rents the track and then they all we all just chip in yeah like i've done some jennings days like that where you know and that's what track days were right and that, and that's that's at the end of the day that's it right there isn't actually a governing body that says mm, you need to put the novice people with the novice people and the advanced people with the advanced people you, you know it, that that just makes sense and over time people figured it out but really all sport bike track time or motovid or anybody else is doing is renting the track and then selling you a spot like it's it's the same as all your buddies getting together and dividing up the cost of renting the track it's just they're just doing it at a profit which which is fine that's not you know i mean they're working you deserve a profit but you you know you know what i'm saying like it's, it's an interesting thing to think about where it's it feels very regulated but there is no regulation. Sure. They, yeah. There is no like government saying you have to do X, Y, Z, but STT has been doing it for how many years now? 20 some years, I think. And uh, maybe longer than that before the, yeah. the, the name changed. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, there used uh, to so be no the Sylvania training. Superbike was only a year or two, if that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So there, yeah. there used to be no track day organizations. It was like, if you want to be on the racetrack, you either race or you don't ride. People would show up to Friday practice just to ride and not with no expectation to race. Yeah. As, as, yeah. It was what they would do. Or you would get your buddies together and rent the racetrack, which, yeah, it's, I mean, I guess the, I, I, the only actual maybe governing body is the fact that they have to be able to carry insurance. 
Yeah, just have some liability and some signs right. and waivers. So their insurance company might say, yeah, we would really like it if you did it like this. <laughs> yeah. And when, well, so I've been looking into doing this private coaching stuff, and they're telling me. Oh, yeah. Good luck getting insurance for that. You need to have a team of medical personnel and medical staff and all these different people to yeah. recommend your person to if they have a crash. And so organizations like Sportback Track Time and WERA and CCS, ASRA, Motor America, they have a network of, of trained medical personnel on site and ambulance and EMTs so that if there is a crash, they're not down for three hours because there's a transport. They have multiple ambulances on, on site and all this stuff that, that uh, mm -hmm. costs money. So yes, you might be paying $200 or more per track day, but um, it's a $1,500 a day for each ambulance. Right. And, and all these other costs that you don't, you don't think about. Yeah. I mean, you say the word racing to insurance companies and a lot of them won't even talk to you. I, I, I know this from the photography stuff and I don't really feel what I'm doing is, all that dangerous but you know it, it is what it is yeah yeah coaching i didn't even think about that when you mentioned it but coaching racing actually probably is somewhat scary because who knows what your customer is going to say you know he, he told me to do this and now i'm a paraplegic it's a massive liability and so through this usmca when i get accepted um it's they offer liability insurance for coaches which is a massive massive thing for us yeah it's huge yeah that's a yeah yeah if you if there's a big group it makes it a little easier to do i suppose yeah, yeah. and that's there's cool. about 400 coaches in the country right now so i could be one of these uh 400 or so uh coaches it's a fairly new organization that's popping up but it sounds like they um i just got certified for cpr aed and uh, first aid as well as sexual abuse training I did concussion-wise, heat-wise, and cardiac-wise training uh, certified as well. That's funny. That there's a little bit of corporate world stuff in there. Yep, a little but, bit of everything going on because I could be coaching kids or people. You know, it's it's high propensity for concussions, and you're always in high, high heat weather. And so, like, um, I just learned about certain, like, heart diseases. I've never even, like, Marfan syndrome. That's pretty unique. Um, where you have like really long fingers and, and arms and there's a high chance of cardiac arrest. Um, now, years ago, I was actually certified as a certified nurse assistant, a CNA, and I got CPR, AED first day, but it's been long expired. So just a couple of days ago, it was good to get that renewed. Hmm. That's interesting. Have you ever worked in that field or? So I was a CNA in high school. I got certified as a, it was like my first and second hour and as my senior year. So I worked in Detroit at the Veterans, the VA hospital, um, but I never did it as a paid job. It was always like a volunteer. Okay. Cause, I mean, that's a lucrative industry. Yeah. Um, I liked it. I thought I wanted to go into the medical industry for a little while, but uh, I kind of decided against going to school for 12, 12 more years. <laughs> it wasn't really like as a CNA, you're the lowest person on the totem pole. You're like, you're changing diapers, you're feeding people, you're, you know, you're, um, I worked on the, the hospice and the rehab side of Veterans Hospital in, in Detroit. So for all the veterans, um, it was it was pretty uh, eye opening because half of the patients that I started with were not alive when I when I finished, you know, and that kind of thing. So yeah, that's that's gotta be a, that's gotta be a strange experience. I mean, it, as a high school student, it it takes a toll on you. Like I, I was like, I don't really think I want to do this as a career. Like people are dying 
every other no. day no, and like, no, people for ab sure. abuse abusing drugs and like rehab as far as uh drug abuse and um like quadriplegic patients um who just had no movement other than their head i'm like this is this is like the deep end like i, I don't know that i want to be doing this at, at a young age i knew i didn't want to do that kind of thing i didn't want to be in the military and i didn't want to work in the medical field uh i don't want to deal with people dying and i don't want uh part of my job to have be to have to kill someone yeah uh, and just you know that, that was just me i and thank god other people are willing to do it because it needs to be done you know we need people in our military and we definitely need nurses just not me yeah and and for me like if i was going to continue with the medical field i wanted to be um like a decision maker not to not to poo poo on anybody who's a nurse or a cna those jobs are absolutely needed but for me i wanted to be like like um a doctor or something and i, I just didn't have it in me to go to school for 12 years so that's that was never going to be my course of my, my path of travel. Well, I mean, I, I can tell you, I got into network engineering because at one point I, uh, well, when I was in photography school, I, I was sort of young, idealistic kid who didn't feel like money mattered. And at one point it occurred to me that it did. <laughs> and uh, I realized that, you know, and then, and then I found something I enjoyed doing that, that is lucrative and, and you it has a future. I mean, it's not going away. Uh, funny photography there were careers in photography when i got into photography and it's not that there aren't now but there there aren't now you know what i mean i mean like you you could go work at a newspaper when i was younger now they don't really have a a photographer staff like they unless, like they you're, unless you're like brian j nelson how do you make a career in photography well brian j nelson's a great example right brian j nelson's no different than me he just does it full time and Look, I'm I'm not saying I'm as good or whatever as Ryan J. Nelson or, or anything like that, but that guy grinds. I, I don't and I think he would agree with me on this. Uh that's not what I mean when I say career photographer. When I when I mean when I'm talking career photographer, I'm like, you have a W two job where yeah, you work salary for a, employee. Yeah, you work for a corporation or, or a newspaper or whatever it is, and then they send you and assign you to do things and, and you collect your paycheck. Um Brian, so I was shooting for the AMA a few years ago. Brian uh, was was there as well, um, and he he came he came to me. And he said, he said, "Hey, um, can you get this one photo?" The worst thing at those things is that you got to shoot the awards, right? If you have an actual assigned thing, so I shoot the AMA awards, and it's like I got to drive back to Indianapolis from Alabama. Like I want to go, but I got to stay like a couple more hours and wait around for the awards to get together. Well he needed a picture of one guy for the awards and he goes, can, can you get that picture? I, I got to get on the road. It was Sunday night. He's like, I got to be in California at Laguna Seca on Tuesday. And I'm, and he's in his van. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I, I'll get your picture. I'll get it. Like, it's cool. But like he, like as much as I love doing this, like, I mean, I think he's on the road like 250 days a year, you know, and he's grinding. Like he, that's, he's, he, he 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 is he is that business you know he's not employed by you know the new york times or the, the dayton daily news back where i was from you know I, I there's a guy who's he's retired now but a guy i know that was a dayton daily news photographer you know and there was a whole staff of photographers back when i was in my teens and 20s when he worked there and now they just send the writer with their iphone it's not 
it's not the same you know i mean uh, when i was in college for photography it was still film and it wasn't film for nostalgic reasons you know it's like digital photography was in its infancy um so, so it's, it's just different but but yes brian um, brian's such a beast as well like you can't break into the business because that guy just covers everything <laughs> like um another guy you got to take a look at if you're interested in this stuff is uh andrew wheeler okay uh, he he was a MotoGP photographer, and he still does it some, not as heavy as he used to. But he's he lives over in Texas now. But he, I think he's British. But uh, Brian and Andrew were when I got into the motorsports photography thing. They were both people that I um looked at, I guess, as I mean, inspiration is the right word, but it's not the the only word. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you you're looking at their styles and what they do and how they shoot and you know what works and th those guys I, I thought made some of the best content you know so for sure definitely uh very well published or publicized i mean brian for sure i mean brian's just brian's just everywhere I, I believe moto america employs him and then he's able to sell to other people individually as well and then sometimes the ama employs him like when when you're double dipping like that and you've already got your travel covered on one way then and then you can shoot for other orgs at the same time and anyway you know what i'm saying uh oh, yeah. it's good all around all around yeah but um the moral of the story really is that especially that that moment when he was driving to california made me made me think like i could probably do this full time i might be able to make as much money as i make doing network engineer work but it'd be way more work oh yeah i mean i'd be way more work way more travel um I don't know. I don't know if that's what I want, you know. But, but I like doing it. Um, I want to shoot more racing though. Track days are fun, but racing is funner. For sure, a lot more going on. So we've actually already achieved our two-hour mark. So is there anything else on your mind you wanted to talk about? Well, we didn't get any like juicy politics or talking shit about anybody like that, you know. Not yet. But but other than that, I mean, that's it. I mean, I don't know. I mean. I mean, do you want to talk about Brian Van? Do you want to talk about abortion? <laughs> There's so many things. Do you want do you want to talk about Joe Biden losing the election? Wait, I mean stealing the election, uh, January 6th committee. <laughs> I mean, we're gonna have to do this on a yearly basis. Right, 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 right. Um, but no, I mean that those are those were the only things I thought we might get into that we didn't, but <laughs> You know, we could talk about cryptocurrency. I'm into that, but no, but uh, yeah, we've we've been on here for a while, so I get it. It's... <laughs> uh, I gotta get uh, get off here, make some dinner, grab another beer or so, and uh, work on uh, another couple of podcasts. I gotta edit. Yeah, for sure. I look forward to seeing once you got there. Um, I think I do want you to take a look at the the thing with the with Monty and the 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 Masera thing because it's the closest video that I've made to this sort of thing, and I think I think you'd enjoy it. It it had a lot of interesting history of the track day stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So. Send it over to me. Maybe I'll uh, put it in the notes of this uh, episode. Yeah, take a look at it. I mean, obviously, no no rush, but you know, take a look at it. So absolutely. cool. Well, good to get to know you a little bit. I will certainly, um, to wrap up, I will say this. I talk to so many people at the track and vaguely recognize them. And then certain people break through that barrier. And I would say we're, we're, uh, we're past that now. I don't know what that sounds like for me to say that, but it's, uh, it's just one of those things where it's like, I know that guy kinda, <laughs> but they all know me. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. So I'm hopefully 
I'm hoping that people see this and like reach out to you and want some more photo photography from you, whether it's, um, I don't know if you do weddings or other, other events, but I, uh, don't, I, if I do a wedding, I tell people not to tell anybody, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but I, but I, I do do other kinds of things. Yeah. To look you up for whatever they need in their, in your area, you're in the Midwest area. So hopefully they yeah. get to know you and me and, uh, and get to know the sport bike community a little bit better and uh and not be so scared of it and maybe come out to an event and for sure no for sure all right well um hopefully we'll talk soon and where can people find you online where are you out there on the oh, uh, electric um and uh the facebook page is probably a better place to find me just because the the point of the the website is a point of sale site uh but it has links to i uh, there's also an instagram they're all electric eye images, uh, .com. Um, I think that's it. I think that's how, uh, that's basically the ways to find me, you know, uh, very good. Simple. Well, uh, I'll try to get this out before August 1st, before I leave for Virginia, but, uh, no guarantees. So it might be a little after that, but either uh, way, I mean, I'm, I'm in no rush. I'm just, you know, I'm just talking on the, talking on the video phone with you. So for sure. So it'll be out in a couple of weeks. And uh, be sure to check out Joseph Hansen, Electric Eye Images, and ericswanracing.com. All right. Talk to you soon, man. All right, man. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.